Hello, dear listeners. Welcome to the last episode of book three. No! (laughs) I know. It's the last one. I don't want it to be. I don't either. It was a very emotional episode for me personally. Of course, we're talking about book three, episode 20, Sozin's Comet, part three, Into the Inferno, and episode 21, part four, Avatar Aang, or as we like to call it, The End of the Beginning. How appropriate. Yeah. It is. It is the end of the beginning, but also the beginning of the next chapter, which is going to be filled with lots and lots of comics. I know. I'm just sitting here pouting in a corner for no reason. This is not the last <laughs> that we're going to be seeing Zuko, Aang, and all of our favorite characters from Team Avatar and the gang. But it still feels like it, you know? Yeah. It's the last time we'll see them in this medium, which I think is where the sadness comes from. Yeah, it's the last time that we'll hear Jack DeSena's wonderful portrayal of Sokka. And Dante Bosco's very Zuko-esque voice. Well, actually, no, I take that back. We will hear him again in core, and it's going to be very confusing for me. Yeah, yeah. I know they recasted <laughs> Sokka, so I was just like, sorry, Jack. Yeah. Miss you, buddy. I miss you so much. <sighs> okay, I'm going to cry. We should we should move on to the reviews. <laughs> Yes, let's hop into reviews. Our first review comes from Augie RC, who writes, I wish there were more stars in an amazing podcast. I've been a listener since book one, but I finally caught up in book three. So now I have to practice some neutral jing and wait. The format is great, funny, and insightful. Acorn and Greg do their research, bringing information on the cast, production, real world connections, and lore of the Avatar world. Looking forward to exploring the rest of the Avatar verse. I'm toasting all your hard work with a cup of jasmine tea. Oh, you know, that's something we haven't done yet. We should celebrate the end of book three with some jasmine tea. We should. I feel like we promised everyone we're going to be drinking tea at some point and then we just forgot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we should definitely do that. But thank you so much for the review, Augie. We're so happy to have you listening. And now that you're caught up, you're going to be right along with us as we go into the next chapter of this adventure. Yes, yes. And thank you for making Angmazing a thing, for continuing the trend. I appreciate it. I keep flashing on Mean Girls. Stop making Fetch a thing. Fetch isn't going to happen. Oh, it's happening. Oh, it's happening. (laughs) The next review comes from Jack Diedhoud. And I'm sure I'm butchering that. I'm so sorry, but it kind of looks like that. Anyways, Jack, because we're close personal friends now, I can call them (laughs) by their, you know, their nickname, Jack wrote a very wonderful five-star review. We are going to uh, read an abridged version of it because there were some spoilers in there for some of the comics that are coming up. Mm. We know not everyone has read the comics, so we just wanted to kind of keep that intact. But there was a wonderful fan fiction in there, and it was very good. It was very (gasps) funny. It was filled with puns. I really enjoyed it. But unfortunately, because we haven't covered the comics yet, can't read the whole thing. But Jack, thank you so much for putting the time and effort into that wonderful story. We super appreciate it. And it was it was a lot of fun. But what I can read is this. Jack writes, life with Iroh and then a silly winky face with the tongue sticking out. <laughs> Hi, Acorn Bandit and Booster Greg, a.k.a. the best podcast host in the history of podcast hosts. Jack is saying that, not me, just for the record. So... <laughs> One night I was listening to your podcast and I made this adorable little story in my head that takes place in how Iroh spent time as his... Oh, that's all right. This is a spoiler. I can't read that either. How Iroh spent his time in one of the comics. In the near future. In the near future. He continues, right? I hope you enjoyed that. Hint, hint, wink, wink, especially the puns. We did. Then there's like five, no, four 
incredibly happy smiley faces on there. We're going to have to come back to that story once we're in the comics. Yes, we absolutely are. Jack, thank you so much again for taking the time to write that in to us. We appreciate it and leaving the five-star review. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Our next review comes from PikaPerson123, which I hope is a Pokemon reference. And they write, Angtastic, two exclamation points. The best, three exclamation points. My fave podcast. My favorite characters are Sokka, Toph, and Iroh. Thanks for this podcast, Acorn and Greg. Cabbage cart forever. And I think it's um, <laughs> an emoji of a celery, which is close to a cabbage. Close enough, yeah. <laughs> Drink tea, not war. Iroh. Toph rules. And then a slew of exclamation points followed with thank you forever. Ending oh. with more exclamation points. Thank you so much, Pika person. I feel like I've created a monster because now Angmazing has turned into <laughs> Angtastic. It's mutating. Oh, I love it. I absolutely love it. The next five-star review comes from Hey Miss Lay. And they write, It's perfect. I was on the search for a podcast just like this. It goes over the episode, discusses it, gives me facts I didn't know before. And as a bonus, they are so funny. Thanks. Well, I think Greg's the funny one, personally. I mean, I think I'm the funny one, too, personally. But. <laughs> <laughs> you should. You've earned it. Oh, thank you. I'm just going to pat myself on the back right there. And everyone <laughs> is just cringing so hard. But it's fine. It's fine. I'm the funny one. And Acorn's the intelligent, talented one. That's just the dynamic I'm the brains. That we get. You're the, the brains. funny. I'm the brains. There we go. <laughs> thank you so much for that review. Our final review comes from K8, the airbender. Who writes, my favorite ATLA pod, the best podcast I've found to recap the ATLA universe. Greg and Acorn provide so much insight with every episode and the puns crack me up every time. I'm so sad they're almost done with ATLA the series, but eager to hear them cover the comics and the Legend of Korra. Also, being the person I am, I have to point out that the episode on the Puppet Master was released on the day of a full moon. Mm-hmm. I don't think Greg and Acorn could have planned that out, but I am so happy it worked out that way. What do you mean? That was clearly the plan the <laughs> whole time. What Greg's trying to say is this is news to us. We did not yeah. plan that, but I love the haunted quality of that match. I loved it so much. It was one of those things that I immediately fact check. I don't fact check things, but I was like, this is too good to be true. And it was not. It's 100% accurate. I messaged you about this review as soon as I read it. I was like, I think we're haunted mm-hmm. now. I think we're cursed. And this is just <laughs> what happens. Yep. Well, it already happens with the reviews. We have very topical reviews for the episodes we're about to cover or did cover. So it's just another example of that. We have That's a haunted true. podcast and I love it. Yeah, absolutely. Next podcast after this, just ghost stories and hauntedness. <laughs> and no, I'm just kidding. No, but still. <laughs> Well, that is it for the reviews. Thank you so much, everyone who wrote in. And I'm really happy to hear that the effort and focus that Greg and I put into research and fun facts and voice acting notes is what you like to hear because it's what we like to talk about. Yeah. And remember, if you left a five-star review and you didn't hear it on this week's episode, guess what? There's always next week's episode and the week after that and the week after that and the week after that and the week after that. We are almost (laughs) caught up on all of the U.S. reviews. So we're super happy to hit that milestone and afterwards jump into the U.K. reviews, Germany, Canada, Australia, you name it. If there's a review there, I'm going to find it and we're going to read it right here. Emails, Twitter, all I almost forgot about those. See, this is why you can't (laughs) go anywhere because we would just have so many email and Twitter reviews and I would just be like, we have no more reviews left and someone would throw a cabbage at my face. Mm-hmm. So thank you for keeping my face cabbage-less. I appreciate it. 
Well, without further ado, let's jump into the final finale episode. Mm, I'm not ready, but let's go. Episodes, uh, I should say, plural, because we're going to be covering two today. The first one is written by Aaron Ehas, Michael Dante DiMartino, and Brian Kanetsko, and was directed by Joaquim Dos Santos. And a small aside before we really get started, Joaquim did win the Best Directing in an Animated Television Production Award in the 2008 Annie Awards for directing this very episode. I can see why. I can absolutely see why. And also going into the finale, Brian and Mike were interviewed and had some thoughts about what it felt like going into this final push in the show. Brian said that he made it a point to try to enjoy each part of the process over the years of making Avatar, which was difficult to do at times due to the insane task they set out for themselves, along with the cram production schedule that they were following. His main goal is to finish retelling the whole story. But beyond that, he wanted to make the finale better than anything they had ever done. He, Mike, and the whole crew were exhausted by the time they actually made it to the finale, but there was an air of a real journey coming to an end. Everyone gave all they had to execute the climactic conclusion and watching the finale in the Paramount Pictures Theater with the crew, their colleagues, friends, and family brought an indescribable sense of closure to Brian's mind. And then Mike said the finale was originally going to have only three parts, but during the storyboarding process of part three, they realized there was just too much story and action that wasn't going to fit into one episode. So they made the decision mid-production to expand part three into two separate episodes. That meant more work for everyone. But as with every other challenge on the series, the artists rose to the occasion and made the last two episodes the highest quality they could. Mm -hmm. If I may, from the director's commentary portion of our show here. Yes. There's a couple things that were pretty interesting. At this point, more specifically in part four, Bright started losing their minds. So you'll see the notes start to become a little crazier, which is kind of interesting. But what they said was it did grow from three to four episodes. But initially, they tried to make all of this happen in one episode. Oh, that's insane. Yeah. So they were like, well, one and three. And then just like you said, mid-production, they were like, yeah, no, this is a four-parter for sure. And I'm glad they did. I think we're all glad that they did that because what it allowed them to do is really capture the cinematic moments in the Avatar universe without rushing. Mm -hmm. And they even stated several times in the commentary on both part three and part four that they're glad that they decided to extend the story to four parts because you can have like more of an establishing shot and you can hang on it for a moment and take it all in and get like that really beautiful landscape. Well, in the Mm -hmm. past, they would have to just cut it immediately. And they can't do that slow zoom. They can't do that panning that they want to do. It's just boom, shot, in you go. So I thought that was a really cool thing that I didn't really pay attention to the first go around. It it just felt more cinematic and I couldn't put my finger on why. And I think a lot of it is because they could take their time with the story on these last couple episodes. Yeah, I can see that too. And I mean, when you think about it, there are so many threads to the story that are happening in the finale. So many different characters. You know, we have Suki... Toph and Sokka. We have Katara, Zuko, and Azula. We have Aang and Ozai. Oh, and then we also have the White Lotus. Yep. That's just way too many things to fit into one episode. So I'm so glad they broke it into four parts because they were really able to dive into each of those storylines and bring them to their conclusion, along with, like you were saying, giving us establishing shots and slow pans and really building up the atmosphere of the episode. Something I do want to note too, I did not note it in parts one and two, but they seem to not be reusing previous artwork, which I really appreciate. 
Um, one of the mm. examples being the um, the CD bar in the Earth Kingdom. I went back and I watched that episode and it looked a lot different from book one than in book three. It was a lot more warmer, more inviting. It was actually a much prettier, in my opinion, painting of that oh, CD wow. bar. Yeah. So they're really putting in the effort on these past episodes. And why wouldn't they, right? Like this is their mm -hmm. swan song as far as they know right now. Like they don't know if they're going to come back to this world or not. End on a high note. Yeah. <laughs> what a high note it was. Oh, man. yeah. Many a tear was shed in the synopsis writing of this episode. I can imagine. I was getting a little choked up as I was watching it. And I was like, oh, I don't want this to be the end. <laughs> You'll hear that sound several times throughout this episode. I apologize. Sure. It's, it's just me crying. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I actually still feel a little stuffy. <laughs> I was <laughs> oh, no. finishing my notes this morning. And of course, I got to the ending. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. But on that note, let's hop into the synopsis itself. We pick up where we left off with the arrival of Sozin's Comet. Against a red-orange sky, Katara and Zuko fly to the Fire Nation capital on Appa. Katara notices Zuko's worried expression and tells him not to worry. They can take on Azula. Zuko replies that it's not Azula he's worried about, it's Aang. What if the young Avatar can't take on his father? What if he loses? Katara is a bit shaken by this thought, but insists that Aang won't lose. In the Fire Nation Palace, royal attendants wait on the soon-to-be Fire Lord Azula as she relaxes in a chair. They brush her hair, scrub her feet, and manicure her nails, while another servant kneels beside Azula's chair holding up a bowl of cherries. When Azula takes another cherry, she bites down on a pit and immediately turns to the cherry attendant. She asks why the servant would decide to leave a pit in her cherry on today of all days, the day of her coronation. As tension slowly fills the room, the cherry attendant attempts to placate the princess with an apology, which Azula seems to accept, claiming that since it's a special day, she will show mercy. But then the princess reveals what she considers mercy, banishment. She orders the servant to leave the palace immediately, and once she is gone, the other attendants continue their roles more carefully than before, no doubt. This is an interesting scene, actually, because we've gotten a taste or a hint, really, that Azula's kind of slipping a little bit. But this is still mostly in her usual realm of Azula behavior, that it's just kind of like Azula turned up to 10. Yeah. And I appreciate that because it's almost like they're pacing us with the eventual decline of Azula's behavior. Yeah. When you're watching this and you're the avid Azula fan that everyone knows that I am, right? Everyone, <laughs> everyone knows that it's just my absolute favorite character of all time, period. And I know I owe everyone a final judgment on uh -huh. Azula in terms of me. Like I, I, I know that if I like Azula, ultimately doesn't matter in the whole fandom of Avatar The Last Airbender. But if you're interested, if my opinion changes, you'll have to wait until the end of this episode. But right now, mm -hmm. this is that classic Azula that I don't like. And you're 110% right. She's dialed up to 10. It's kind of like what you're not an adult. You can't just not choke on a pit. You can't just eat a cherry like a normal person and just not choke mm -hmm. on a pit. But no, she's being overly sensitive about things. It's kind of like the rock star who asks for a bowl of red M&Ms and finds the single orange one in there and yes, throws a temper tantrum. Exactly. That's what this reminded me of. 110%. Yep. But it's nothing out of the realm, as you said, of what we've seen her do before in terms of how picky she is, mm -hmm. in terms of the attention that she demands. But there is just something off about it. And I do like exactly that, that like placing the breadcrumbs so we can follow the trail down to her madness. Mm -hmm. 
And it kind of calls back to the severity that we've already seen with, for instance, the scene where she's practicing firebending and her hair comes out of place. Yeah. Still very much in character, but you're right. There's just something a little bit off about it. Yeah. Some distance away, Top, Suki, and Sokka ride their eel hound across a large body of water. Suki comments that it's too bad the comet is beautiful. It's changed the sky to a rich orange red and the clouds are being pushed away with its approach. They reach land and crawl up to a ledge where they can see a fleet of airships taking off. Before they get too high, Toph launches them into the air with a pillar of rock and the three friends land on the catwalk of one of the ships. Meanwhile, at the front of the fleet, Phoenix Emperor Ozai stands on the prow of the lead ship, smiling in anticipation of the destruction that is to come. I love the shot of the eel hound swimming. I don't know what it is. It is beautiful. (laughs) It is mesmerizing. I could just make that my screensaver and just watch it for hours. There are many points in the Avatar world and universe so far that I've been like, this is beautiful. It's a really good shot. But this is the only one that has mesmerized me to this point. And um, it was actually, I think it was Brian Konetsko in the commentary. I went on YouTube and I watched him talk for about five minutes so I could differentiate him. And, <laughs> and, and did it and work? It kind of, I, I think it did. I think it did. So I'm pretty sure it was Brian said that this was one of his favorite shots in the whole series as well. And I was mm. like, yeah, I can see why because it's just the movement so fluid, the color of the eel hound against the backdrop of that red sky in the water. Ugh. So just I could write probably a four page paper on just how beautiful that that scene is. (laughs) I'll stop myself here. But just know I paused and rewound this several times through each rewatch that I did. So it's hypnotic. And again, calling back to what we said in our last episode, the whole team loved the eel hounds design so much. They were sad that they couldn't continue to use it because they were at the end of the show. Another note about this scene, actually. So they get to the land and they crawl up this hill and they kind of look into a crater of what seems to be a dormant volcano. We are in the Earth Kingdom here. This is not in the Fire Nation. This was actually a secret base that Ozai created in order for them to build these airships and pick the location so that it was close enough that they could begin their assault without having to fly very far. So I thought that was a really cool detail. The fact that the Fire Nation not only has been developing and upgrading these different types of like war machines and war vehicles, but they have all these secret bases all over the world where they stash their stuff so they can launch assaults and attacks based on what their plans are. Yeah, that's very, very smart planning right there. Like, I don't know if there are many supervillains that would have... Ozai is a supervillain. Everyone probably was like, whoa, supervillain, maybe taking it back a little bit. Let's just call a spade a spade on this one. Ozai <laughs> wants to destroy the world, cover it in ash, and then have himself rise from the ashes. That sounds like a supervillain to me. Anyways, sorry, I mean, moving on. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know many supervillains that like think that far ahead to be like, all right, let's have secret bases that will just make mm-hmm. everything a lot easier for us in the future in terms of the yeah. assault. Also, they do know they have a limited window. So again, makes more sense. Mm-hmm. Yep. Inject some realism in there. Yeah. Make the story feel feel a little more solid. I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Back at the palace, Azula has moved to the throne room. A trio of Dai Li agents approach the royal dais and kneel before a wall of blue flames. The head of the Dai Li asks if everything is all right, acknowledging that Azula sent for them. Azula replies that no, everything is not all right. It took them five minutes to reach the throne room. Plenty of time for an assassin to do away with her and be on his merry way. The head of the Dai Li seems puzzled by this, quietly noting Azula's erratic behavior. 
The princess asks if this is how the Dai Li plan on treating the new Fire Lord, with tardiness and disloyalty. The head of the Dai Li assures her that the Dai Li would never betray her, but Azula does not believe them. She sentences them to banishment as well. Without a word, the group files out of the room. Azula's kind of like the Oprah of banishment in this episode. You get a banishment, you get a banishment, you get a banishment. I mean, yeah. <laughs> but she also has a point. I mean, yeah. the Daily were willing to betray Long Fang, and she's, you know, who's to say that they wouldn't eventually turn on her too? I don't understand why the Daily just didn't attack her immediately. Because the only reason why the Dai Li aren't revolting is because they have a spot at the top, right? Like we yep. talked about this several times over book two and a little bit into book three, I feel like, where the Dai Li just want to be in power. They don't care who their superior is. They just want to be on top of the chain. It doesn't have to be the tippy top. They can be like underlings. They don't care, but they want that power. So if they lost that mm -hmm. power, why wouldn't they just turn on Azula? They can very easily neutralize her. Yeah. And I'm thinking and hoping we're going to see the Dai Li again, or at least their next incarnation yeah. once we get to Korra, or even in the comics, who knows. But I like to think my headcanon is after noticing that Azula is kind of unraveling, doesn't really seem to be all together, the head of the Dai Li just kind of cut his losses and is like, you know what? It's time to pivot. It's time to regroup. I think this is a sinking ship. So we're just going to exit stage left and we'll see what happens next. I can get behind that. Absolutely. He looked at her and goes, she's kind of crazy in the first place. Now, yeah, boys, pack it up. We're going. We're heading home. That's it. Forget this place. <laughs> yep. Love it. Also, a note about Azula's appearance. This is the first time outside of her bedchamber that we've seen her with her hair down. That's right. Which is very interesting. And I was reading that it's kind of similar to a classic villainess in Japanese legend in Kabuki theater named Oiwa. Oiwa was a married woman whose husband killed her in order to marry a younger, wealthier woman. And thus her spirit was enraged enough to cross back over to the land of the living where she exacted a bloody revenge. A tale as old as time. <laughs> it's a classic, <laughs> classic storyline, right? Yeah, sure. Oh, man. Jealousy, rage, revenge. Ghosts. Ghosts. Got it all. <laughs> Good stuff. Yeah, she definitely has that like really spooky vibe, especially with her blue fire now kind of oh, um, yep. engulfing the throne room instead of the typical red that we've seen. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Very ghostly vibes going on. Mm-hmm. As the airship fleet flies over the water, Sokka, Suki, and Toph creep up to the control room. Toph knocks a jaunty pattern onto the metal door and then bursts through it, folding the metal door around her like armor as she rolls into the room. The astonished crew attempt to firebend but are pinned to the ceiling and walls with more sheets of metal. With the control room seized, Sokka gives the order to take the wheel, to which Toph replies, That's a great idea. Let the blind girl steer the giant airship. Sokka clarifies that he was talking to Suki, which Toph agrees makes a lot more sense. I have two thoughts on this scene. First off, Sokka was definitely talking to Toph and then pivoted because he definitely <laughs> forgot, as we all do all the yes. time, that Toph is blind. 100%. Yep. <laughs> That's actually backed up in the Sozin's Comet, the final battle book. So That's funny. We can pretty much consider that canon. Yes, yes. The second one is that I came to this realization, and maybe maybe I'm late to this party. Did Toph learn how to combine seismic sense with metal bending? I would like to think so. That seems like a natural progression, right? Yeah, but they never make a point of it. It just happens, which is very interesting. Because remember in the drill, she didn't want to go in the drill because she's like, I can't see in there. It's a giant metal box. Mm -hmm. And now she's in a giant metal box 
in the air and she can still take out Fire Nation guards. Yeah. So I, I like how they did that. And I think that's the case, even though we haven't seen it. I think back to when she first discovered metal bending, when she was in that, again, another metal box being mm-hmm. hauled back to the Earth Kingdom, where she put her hands against the walls and felt the minerals and impurities in the metal. That was kind of like a version of Seismic Sense. It was oh, probably right. the very early beginnings of it. So while we haven't seen her actually use Seismic Sense with metal bending, that's kind of my headcanon to explain how she's now more comfortable. Yeah. I just can't help but think of Iron Man 1 with Toph in this specific scene. Oh, <laughs> she literally <laughs> like the, makes Mach, her, the Mach 1 or whatever. Yeah, she makes herself the Mach 1 Iron Man suit essentially out of metal bending and just takes out guards. Can you imagine if Phoenix King Ozai heard about that? He would just be like, Toph developed this technique in a metal box (laughs) out of scraps. (laughs) All episode, every time she metal bends, that's all I heard. It was very enjoyable for me. Great quote. Oh, man. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, okay. So let's also pause for a second and talk about the reaction that this crew must have had. Yes. Like, even though we didn't really see it in their faces, I imagine they had an absolute meltdown. This little girl comes to the door, wraps herself in metal. Mm-hmm. It becomes a terrifying faceless creature that skitters along the ceiling <laughs> and throws does. them around the room using no kind of bending they've ever seen in their lives. Yep. They probably peed their pants. Nightmare fuel right there, for sure. Nightmare fuel. Nightmare. Yep, yep, yep. yep. There is a giant weakness to Toph's plan, and fortunately, it didn't come to fruition. I think I know what you're going to talk about. If they just kept fire on, she would be boiled alive in there. Yeah. So I thought that when they blasted at her, I was like, you know, metal does heat up very easily. Yeah. Probably not the best idea to do that. But, you know, then she could always just metal bend it off of her. And then she has molten hot steel hurtling at her enemies. Fair point. Yeah. So maybe she is thinking ahead. Turn into another weapon. She has also been, I don't remember if it's this scene specifically, but definitely in the the later scenes, she's starting to metal bend without having like direct contact with the metal in terms of like just prying it open with her bare hands. She's definitely developing it a bit more. She's throwing it. It's it's more like traditional earth bending in terms of the attacks, which is really Mm -hmm. cool. So yeah, she's been playing with it. She's been saving these tricks up until the end. It's just great to see. And who doesn't love whenever you get a suit of an element? It's just fun. Yeah, we had our crystal suit. We had our water octopus suit. Now we have a metal suit. Yeah. So good. Mm. But yeah, that's a great point. And again, it reminds me of some conversations we've had in the past where either we'll see the characters practicing in the background of a scene or in a fight, they'll do something new that will tell us that stuff has been happening off camera and the characters have continued to develop. So again, just this little nuance in storytelling that is so effective. But at this point, Suki asks what they're going to do with the rest of the crew on the ship. And Sokka tells her to bring the airship down to the water. He has an idea. Using the intercom system, Sokka pretends to be the captain and orders the ship's crew to report to the Bombay for hot cakes and sweet cream. They have a very special birthday to celebrate. The crew gathers in the Bombay, some crew members getting the chance to meet each other for the very first time. And one very special birthday boy announces to the group that the captain remembered his birthday. (gasps) Right after saying this, however, the Bombay doors open and they're all dropped into the water below. (laughs) I love this scene so much. There's not a lot of comedy in these next couple episodes, but when Mm -hmm. there is, it really shines through and it's just a solid time. A couple of fun facts just to kind of throw in here while we're pausing. 
Bryke did the voices of both of those gentlemen that were at the Bombay doors, which is really oh cool. Oh my gosh. That's incredible. So there's three people who talk. Yes. Are you saying that of those three, the two of them did some sort of voice acting? Yes. Yes, they did. I don't know which ones were which, but they were definitely... They, they mentioned that in the commentary. They're like, oh yeah, and we, we got to... So Brian... <laughs> Mr. Brian Kanetsko was actually against the birthday scene in its entirety. <gasps> Brian. He's like, I don't want that in there. Um, but then he jokes and say, but then, you know, he, they let us voice act it. And we were like, okay, I'll allow it. <laughs> we're in. Yes. I, I do want to note that this is the first time where we've had a secret podcast episode that took place before or we recorded yes. it before we recorded this episode. Right. So... This is a little teaser, a little little taste for everyone. The birthday gentleman has a name canonical to only Avatar the podcast. <laughs> yep. Only to this podcast. And his name is Urudoshi. So if you want to hear about the life of this guy, you want to hear about his family, his time in the Fire Nation, you go to the Patreon, patreon.com slash Avatar the podcast. And as long as you are in the 100-year war, or above, you can go ahead and listen to it. It was such a good episode. It was so much fun. I looked forward to it so much when we saw that he was nominated because I knew anyone with a birthday scene in Avatar is going to have a very fun background. Yes, and it was a great time. So go ahead over there. I just got very excited that we actually got to cover it and we got to cover this birthday surprise before we actually talked about it on the show. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Back in the Royal Palace, we find out just how many people Azula has banished when Lo and Lee come to see her in the throne room. She's banished all her servants, her daily agents, and the Imperial firebenders. The old women ask why she's done this, and Azula replies that none of them could be trusted. Sooner or later, they would have betrayed her, just like May and Tai Lee did. Out of paranoia, Azula believes her father sent Lo and Lee to check on her because he doesn't think she can handle the responsibility of being Fire Lord. When Lo and Lee suggest that she postpone her coronation until she is well, Azula brashly orders them to duel in an Agni Kai. But Lo and Lee aren't firebenders. So instead, Azula banishes Lo and walks out of the room. But this is so funny. The other one is Lo. <laughs> I, I'm Lee. Does that mean you're banished? <laughs> yeah. It was like really a really funny it. exchange. Again, you're right. There aren't that many moments of humor. But when we do get to those humorous moments, they're really solid. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I'd like to think that both Lo and Lee were just like, uh, the Daily left. We're probably just going to scoot and do the same. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting because one could come to the conclusion that Azula is banishing everyone before they can betray her because her two best friends, who she never thought in a million years would betray her, did so. Mm -hmm. It's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy at this point. Oh, totally. So she's trying to get the upper hand and saying like, all right, well, like... <laughs> It's like in a breakup where you're just like, no, I break up with you before the person can finish their sentence. Mm -hmm. It's exactly that, which is what she's doing. And we're really seeing like this unhingement. I know that's not a word, but just follow me on it. This like unhinging of her personality, her perfection. It's all just breaking down faster and faster with each second that goes by with each act that she performs. She's losing more and more of herself. Yeah. And I love the extremes that they take in the story to really address that. So she banished, yeah, her servants. Okay. The Dai Li agents, but she also banished the Imperial firebenders, which as a reminder, 
that is the royal procession, the elite firebenders who are personal and ceremonial guards for the Fire Nation royal family. Mm -hmm. So it's like banishing your bodyguards, thinking that they were going to betray you. So she has no one around her now. Yeah. And we'll see that a little bit later on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Far away in the Earth Kingdom, the Order of the White Lotus has gathered outside the walls of Ba Sing Se. Masters Zhang Zhang, Bumi, Paku, and Pian Dao stand together on a rocky knoll with Iroh in front of them and groups of Lotus members behind. The Order of the White Lotus has come to set the city free. As the sun descends to the horizon, Iroh reflects on what the coming comet means. Only once every hundred years can a firebender experience this kind of power. He breathes in and flames lick around the edges of the knoll. With each breath, the flames grow until the masters are surrounded by a ring of fire. Finally, with a yell, Ira pulls the fire into a massive ball and sends it hurtling straight through the wall of the city. The eruption rains down chunks of rock on the waiting troops. Okay, this moment, so epic. And I'm so happy that we got to see the retaking of Ba Sing Se and the masters of the story in action. Yes, I had this thought. It never dawned on me until watching their Avengers Assemble scene. <laughs> yep. I kind of wish that one of them wasn't a man. Just one mm -hmm. of them. I just would like a little more diversity. And I know I'm saying this in a series that is full of diversity, but just like a tad bit more just on this one. I don't know where that would have been. I love all of these characters so much. I don't know who I would want to replace. Uh, maybe Pian Dao. I was going to say Pian Dao would be the perfect pick. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. The other thing that kind of irked me, but then I kind of talked myself out of the irky feeling, which I'm going to just do the same for everyone right now. There's two firebenders on the team and mm -hmm. actually three members of the Fire Nation, which I felt kind of was lopsided. Pian Dao is a Fire Nation citizen himself. So you have Iroh, Pian yeah. Dao, and Zhang Zhang. What got me out of that kind of like weird feeling was realizing that they're supposed to represent each different element, but there are no more air nomads. So they probably just had to fill that slot with like Pian Dao, for example, or Zhang Zhang. Yeah. At first, it looked so balanced and I kind of picked at the surface a little bit. I was like, eh, it's not really that balanced. And then I was like, well, it is a 100 year war. So they're probably just taking what they can get and they're trusting their gut with each person that is picked into the Order of the White Lotus. Mm -hmm. It's not to say that there are no women in the Order of the White Lotus. The White Lotus is more than just those men. But that's yeah. what they focus on. And I kind of wish that maybe Pandao was just a woman or or something. Yeah, me too. And I mean, I know in a show that's animated, you try to cut corners wherever you can to keep your quality and not unnecessarily animate things. Yeah. So we get these very like smudgy little glimpses of groups of people behind them mm. that tell us more than just the masters are sieging bossing say. So yeah, there's probably women in those groups, but for the representation of the masters themselves, yeah. uh, the leaders of the White Lotus, I agree. It would have been really nice to have a female. And running off of the Pian Dao idea, it would actually be pretty poetic for Sokka to have gone to learn from a woman swordmaster, right? Yeah. Oh my God. With his, I was, I was his origins yes. as being kind of sexist. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that would have been like such a great way to kind of wrap up that whole part of his personality to be like, like, we know it's gone now. Well, as gone mm -hmm. as it's going to be. And it would have been a nice little like cherry on top of that, that uh, character development Sunday. That yeah. That, yeah, that would have been really cool. Well, maybe, maybe next time break with <laughs> Avatar Studios things. 
If you need any ideas like that, you just call up your good friends, Acorn and Greg. <laughs> yep. Just give us a call on the old telephone. Yeah. So that was just kind of something that occurred to me as I was watching it. But I did mm-hmm. really love watching the Order of the White Lotus just like demolish the forces of the Fire Nation. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And I'm sad to report this is actually Boomy's last speaking role in the series. Oh, that's right. And he never got to see Aang again. No, he never, he never did. And we knew that was coming. Mm -hmm. We knew it. We talked about that. Yeah, we talked about that on the Return to Amashu episode. Mm -hmm. And it was just devastating. Because I was kind of hoping that like, I was wrong. We were wrong. We remembered it Mm -hmm. wrong, but we didn't. And what's even more heartbreaking is neither of them seemed to notice. Yeah. And, And like, why would they? The events of book three especially towards the end, are just like happening so fast, so rapid fire that they're just going through the motions to survive, to defeat their enemy, to just move forward and put the world back in order that they don't have time mm-hmm. to really reflect on personal relationships that aren't right in front of them. Yeah. Even Katara said that when yeah. Aang brought up the fact that they weren't together. She's like, Aang, there's a lot going on right now and I can't focus on a relationship when we're trying to win a war. That's true. Yeah. I like to think that they met after everything and we just didn't see it on the show. Yeah, that's a nice thought. I like to think that too. Maybe we'll find out some more in the comics. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I hope so. Fingers I hope, crossed. I hope Boomy's in the comics that I can do some dramatic reading for everyone on the podcast in my Boomy voice. <laughs> yeah, we need more <laughs> Boomy voice. Oh man, I'm going to miss him so much. And I know that it's still possible to get more Boomy in future Avatar Studios stuff because yep. the voice actor is still alive. We can always do prequels. We can't do sequels because he's very old in this, but you know, we can mm-hmm. always get some more Boomy in our lives, but it's still just heartbreaking. I love Boomy so much. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Well, using earthbending, Boomy moves the white lotus across the empty plain toward the wall. When they're close enough, the masters leap through the wall and begin laying siege. Paku and Pian Dao slide through the streets on rivers of ice as Zhang Zhang provides cover from the sky on a suspended jet of fire. The firebending master holds off the occupying Fire Nation troops with enormous columns of fire at each crossroads. He also uses those pillars of fire to push them back. And this is where it is cool to have more than one firebender on the team because Iroh is focused on getting into the city and realizing his destiny of taking Ba Sing Se. So we don't see him firebend much beyond that first fireball that he launches. So it's mm. cool to see Zhang Zhang all juiced up on comet energy. Yeah. Like being a, an incredible firebender in the sky. I got Iron Man vibes again from him just oh, flying. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Ozai too later. Yeah. We know that production takes a while on these things. And Iron Man 1 did come out in 2008. I don't know if they like had the time to see it and be like more Iron Man in an avatar. Just like subconsciously. (laughs) Needs more Iron Man. (laughs) Needs more Iron Man. But I got heavy (laughs) Iron Man vibes from from this episode. And I'm not complaining. I really enjoyed it. Nope. What they did say on the director's commentary for this is the sound design was very masterfully done. Oh, yes. That's one thing I noticed. Yeah. What they did was they pretty much just went to their sound guy, which is like, hey, uh, that the firebending sound, it needs to be bigger and no sound can be the same. <laughs> that oh, was wow. like the direction. And it was just <laughs> like, geez. And they came up with all of that, which was really cool because Zhang Zhang's flying has a different sound from the firewall, from fire blast. And it was just, it happens all so fast. It's very easy to lose a lot of that 
in the mm-hmm. mayhem. But man, they really pulled this off, in my opinion. Yeah, it sounds robust. Yeah. I would get chills just hearing the sound effects of the fire, especially when we yeah. head back over to the airships mm. and we actually see the fire bending starting to happen. That like whooshing sound yeah. is overwhelming. Yes. Yeah. But first, we're going to head back over to the palace where Azula is attempting to get ready for her coronation without any servants. She takes a ribbon and tries to tie her hair into a top knot, but ties her fingers up with her hair instead. Frustrated, she grabs a pair of scissors from the table next to her and slices great chunks from the hair hanging in front of her face. She grins wildly at her reflection in the mirror, now complete with lopsided asymmetrical bangs, until she hears a voice. What a shame. You always had such beautiful hair. Her mother, Ursa, stands behind her in the mirror. What are you doing here? Azula asks. Ursa replies, I didn't want to miss my own daughter's coronation. Azula tells her not to pretend to act proud. She knows what she really thinks of her daughter. She thinks Azula is a monster. I think you're confused. All your life you used fear to control people, like your friends May and Ty Lee. Azula, clearly unraveling, stares into the mirror and then whips around. Well, what choice do I have? Trust is for fools. Fear is the only reliable way. Even you fear me. Very gently, her mother says, no, I love you, Azula. I do. Azula's lip trembles and tears stream down her face. She grabs her hairbrush and hurls it into the mirror, fracturing her mother's reflection. She sinks to her knees in the empty room, sobbing quietly. Wow. 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 One word, masterful. Mm -hmm. And I have to know, what did you think about this turn for Azula's character? I'm still not convinced yet at this point. Like I, I like this direction they're going in. Do I still like Azula at this point? No, but <laughs> the scene is beautiful. Everything about mm-hmm. it visually, design-wise, like the room itself, or the camera angles they decide to use, the voice acting, everything is on point mm-hmm. for sure. Even like the design of Azula shifts slightly, just ever so slightly. She gets a little more angular almost. Yeah, a lot more like mouth action, like the angles of her expressions are a lot more exaggerated and pulled than normal. Yes, yes. And I would say even like her chin and mandible are a little like visually Mm. more angled. And I didn't really see that until I went back and watched a couple episodes from book two just to see Azula. And she was more Mm -hmm. rounded and a little more like her face was a little more full, for lack of a better term. Yeah. Uh, So it was very interesting. The Ursa appearance... I spoiled this for myself a little bit because I had a theory and it was like out of left field. And I was like, how out of left field am I on this one? Turns out I was beyond left field. I was in the parking lot, but still, <laughs> okay. this is in her mind. But mm-hmm. I, my train of thought was like, what if it's not in her mind? What if this is like her mother's spirit or something? Because we don't know what's going on with Ursa at this point. Mm-hmm. So it could be like her spirit or something like that. Because when, when Azula throws her brush at the mirror, and it cracks. If you watch it frame by frame, Ursa doesn't just like disappear. She like fades. It's like a Ooh. very, very purposeful fade animation. And I feel like when we've seen that before, it's been mostly with spirits. These just kind mm-hmm. of fade away. And I was like, well, you know, turns out, well, I don't want to say it because spoilers for the comics, but it turns out I'm in, it's probably just in her mind. She's Tyler Durdening, the, her mother right now <laughs> is what's going on. Yep. But I was kind of playing with the notion of like, what if not? But I feel Mm -hmm. pretty confident that it was just, she's crazy, which again, 
don't like the character, but I'm loving this story so far. The per- I love, I love seeing perfection just crack. I don't know why. I think we all do. Yeah. <laughs> it's like- it's a little bit of schadenfreude, to be yeah. honest. You know, watching someone fall down or, you know, get what was coming to them. It feels kind of good. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, this scene, beautiful. I wouldn't change anything about this scene. Yeah. And I think what you touched on there where you had this kind of guessing game of, is she there? Is this her spirit? Is it all in Azula's head? Was exactly what they wanted you to think. Because I remember watching this for the very first time and my train of thought was very similar. Wait, did Ursa come back? Did she somehow hear that things were going down in the Fire Nation and that she chose this moment to return? No, wait, she's in her Fire Nation robe. She wouldn't have those anymore. She wouldn't look like that. Well, is it her spirit? And then at the very end of the scene, you realize, no, the room is empty. This was all in Azula's head. And I think that's interesting that if Azula is imagining her mother being there, she imagines her mother saying the things her mother would actually say. Yeah. But what's even more interesting is that it's things that her mother would say that Azula probably wanted to hear when Mm -hmm. she was a child, but it's too late to hear now. And it only further enrages her and further sends her into Mm. her own madness. Yeah. Great point. Like salt in her wounds. Yeah. Yeah. Well, final note about this scene and touching on the fact that you're noticing the more angular features of Azula, we might be able to attribute that to a new storyboard artist that joined the crew for season three named Lauren Montgomery. Hmm. She's particularly skilled with the acting and posing of female characters, as well as rendering hair. So we really get to see all of those skills showcased in multiple scenes of the finale, including this one. The team was saying that her storyboarding combined with Jung Hee Young's animation turned out to be some of Mike and Brian's favorite Azula moments. And just doing a quick IMDb on Laurent Montgomery because there are no new voice actors in here. So I feel like I missed my (laughs) dear friend, the Internet Movie Database. Laurent Montgomery Uh has worked on such properties as DreamWorks Voltron that was on Netflix that everyone Mm. uh, that everyone really liked. I got I watched it a bit. I didn't finish it just because I got busy. Uh, Young Justice, which was amazing. I love Young Justice. Legion of Superheroes. Legend of Korra, she'll come back for just like a plethora of just wonderful wow. animated properties. So just speaks, I think, to her talent right there that right after mm-hmm. Avatar, she really kind of actually even before Avatar, she worked on a, a bunch of really cool stuff as storyboard artists like Justice League New Frontier, Justice League Unlimited. Just a great, great resume here. So you wow. can see it. You can awesome. see it right there in the scene. Like you don't you don't yeah. need me to tell you that she worked on all these wonderful things. You can just assume that from this scene alone. You need a resume? Uh-huh. Send them that. Absolutely. And like, it is a little different than the rest of the scenes we've seen so far. Yeah. There's a lot more acting. There's a lot more gestures. Focus is put in places that really drive home the underlying like narrative that's happening, like on her hair, on her hand holding the scissors that are flicking it up into the air. Like it's very poetic visually, I would say. Absolutely. Yeah. Across the world, the fleet of airships reach land, and Phoenix King Ozai breathes in the power of the comet and smiles sadistically. With incredible power and focus, he holds out his hand with palm facing outward and focuses the power of the comet into a tight, compact jet of fire. The fire explodes from his hand with the power of a volcano, and a geyser of rolling orange flames consumes the ground below. The path before the airship begins to burn, and birds take flight from the trees. So this is a new setting for us. We haven't been here before. And this land is called the Wulong Forest. 
It's iconic for the lush green trees along the coast and then those columns of rock that extend deeper into a mountain range. And there's a couple places around the world that have rock formations that are similar to this. But specifically, there's a national forest park in China's Hunan province called Zhang Jiajie that has rock formations similar to those at the Wulong Forest. And I did a quick Google search and it looks very similar. Hmm. Uh, I do want to make a quick note here that the comet itself has not even broken the atmosphere. It's just kind of like skimming the atmosphere right now. So imagine if it broke through like closer, how more powerful the firebenders would be. Like, look at what Ozai is yeah. doing right here. And then just That's imagine. That's a good point. E. <laughs> There's clearly a correlation between distance to the comet and mm -hmm. firebenders in terms of power. So like, uh, I don't know. It, it gave me like an unsettling feeling when I realized that. Because what they're doing is really scary. Scary strong. Yeah. Well, up ahead, Aang stands on a tall rock column. He earthbends pieces of the column at Ozai's airship puncturing the body and breaking mechanisms that cause the airship to lean sideways and begin to go down. As the airship passes into the forest of rock columns, Ozai and Aang lock eyes for the very first time. The Phoenix King removes his ornate robes with a suppressed fury and launches himself at Aang with firebending. He lands on a neighboring column and addresses the Avatar. After generations of Fire Lords failing to find you, now the universe delivers you to me as an act of providence. Aang pleads with him to end things here. Ozai has the power to stop what he's doing. The Phoenix King agrees with him. He does have the power. He has all the power in the world. Ozai leans his head back and columns of fire erupt from his mouth and hands. He leaps into the air and bends a ring of fire out from his column and the fight begins. I really like that Ozai doesn't take off his ornate suit. He just burns it off. <laughs> yeah, he like undoes the sash slips off his his robe and yep. then it like burns as he lets go of it <laughs> what a yep. flex right there <laughs> absolute yep. monster of a flex <laughs> i also find it very interesting that they chose to make ozai kind of smaller in stature than mm. what you might think like he takes off all of this like robes and his garments and he's don't get me wrong he is absolutely built like he is strong he's cut like he looks like he takes care of himself but I'm thinking back to when Aang was having nightmares about Ozai right. before he met him and how like faceless and scary and large he was. Even in the joke nightmares episode where he's just this huge, he doesn't have like <laughs> legs. He's A just like, he's this giant like fire lord. And mm -hmm. then he, Aang meets him and he's just a man. He's a crazy man. He's very powerful, but he's still just a man. And I think that kind of like helps Aang a little bit, mm -hmm. you know, like with, with his fight. And I think a lot of the events that have led up to this moment, specifically in the past couple episodes, also help that. Because yeah. the monster of Ozai, by, I would argue, after the Southern Raiders, Aang realizes that Ozai is a person, not a monster. And then when he yep. sees him, he's like, oh man, like now I really can't kill this guy. He is a person. <laughs> like I really can't. So what you'll notice is while Aang is fighting Ozai in the scenes to come, he hurls a rock or two at Ozai, but he never actually attacks. All of his movements yeah. are defensive because he still, even though every single avatar that he has conjured told him he has to be decisive, he is still unsure of what he wants to do next. Yep. Absolutely. Wild. And since we're talking about callbacks, 
that pose that Ozai does where he breathes fire out of his mouth and shoots out of his hands, it is very similar to Aang's vision in Winter Solstice Part 2, Avatar Roku, as well as the Guru. Oh, yeah. So while he is a human man standing in front of him and not the giant monster that's been lurking in Aang's mind, he does have the same like character traits. He's doing the things that Aang imagined him doing. Mm. It's interesting. I wonder if he tapped into some sort of spiritual energy on that one in his nightmares. Yeah, I wonder. Yeah. And finally, the pillar that Aang stands on is very similar to the pillar that Roku is seen standing on in the opening sequence when he bends the four elements. Ooh. That's also kind of a nod to the fact that Mike and Brian had this in mind since the very beginning. They knew that he was going to have this epic fight with Ozai. And I think they chose the location too and had some concept art planned out for it. Yeah, they knew where they were going. They just didn't know with 110% certainty what it would look like when they got there. But they knew where they, they were going. Yep. Yeah, exactly. In the airship, Sokka cheers Aang on. When Suki asks if they should help, Sokka tells her and Toph that Ozai is Aang's fight. They have to focus on stopping the fleet from burning the Earth Kingdom. Toph throws her hands in the air. And how do we do that, Captain Boomerang? I can't see outside of this floating hunk of metal. Ah. <laughs> Captain Boomerang. Yeah, and I read that that is apparently a DC supervillain. Mm -hmm. He's one of the Flash's rogues. He was in, actually, if you watched the first Suicide Squad movie, he was portrayed by uh, Jai Courtney. He was also, I believe, in the second one, or the second but not second one. I don't know what you want to call the Suicide Squad, but <laughs> he was also in that one. Yeah, he's a, he's a pretty uh, infamous Flash rogue, for sure. So as soon as she said that, I was like, ah, I see what you did there. <laughs> I caught what you're putting I out. Yeah. I, caught, I caught that boomerang. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, the puns are great cool. today. Sorry, I'm so emotional that this is still the end. That's all right. I think we've had enough puns this whole time to have a few extra know. for this episode. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Sokka looks through the window at the row of ships and exclaims, airship slice. He pilots the ship to the end of the line and turns it around. But as he does, the fleet reaches land. Firebenders on the prow of each ship begin bending wide streams of fire at the ground below, scorching it and leaving a lake of fire and clouds of smoke behind them. On the airship, Toph faces a broken window and feels the heat emanating from the ground. Whoa, that's a lot of fire, isn't it? She says quietly. That also is such a powerful moment. The fact that Toph is blind, but in the air can still tell how much fire they're putting out on the ground. And to have that realization without even being able to see it, I think would be a very scary moment. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there's so much fire going on. It has to be at least 10 to 15 degrees hotter where they are, even in the mm -hmm. air. Well, heat rises too. So it might even be yep. hotter in the air. But yeah, yeah. I had the same realization. I, I was just like, you already reminded me that she was blind in this episode. Why are you? Oh, <laughs> and it makes it scarier as well. Jeez. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really does. I do also like that Sokka has an ultimate move. He just like yells yeah. out. <laughs> Airship slice. It's so good. It's actually kind of a nod to the fact that in the Avatar Day episode, he was talking about airbending slice. And he said oh, it a second yeah. time now and then turned it into airship slice. So it's a nice. little continuity nod there for you. I love those. Once the ship is turned around, Sokka maxes out the speed and tells the others they need to get to the top of the airship as fast as they can. Their ship soon collides into the line of airships, skimming along the tops and slicing through their massive balloons. The three friends make it onto the roof just as their own balloon breaks in half. Sokka and Toph are separated from Suki and leap to another airship together. 
Sokka rolling to protect Toph from any falling debris, which was a very sweet moment. Yeah. Back at the capital, the fire sages have gathered for Azula's coronation. The soon-to-be fire lord kneels in ceremonial robes, her hair still disheveled and butchered, to receive the royal headpiece. But just as the sages are about to pronounce her fire lord, Appa arrives with Katara and Zuko. The prince and waterbender leap off the bison and face Azula. Zuko tells her he will be fire lord, not her. And she challenges him to the showdown that was always meant to be in Agni Kai. Zuko agrees and Katara wordly reminds him that Iroh said he would need help to fight Azula. I can take her this time, he says. There's something off about her. I can't explain it, but she's slipping. And this way, no one else has to get hurt. I will note that we've seen coronations before in Avatar The Last Airbender, specifically Mm -hmm. with Sozin, I believe is what we saw. Yep. There were a lot of people there. It's very different. Yep. (laughs) Kind of seems like Azula's the only one there. (laughs) Azula banished everyone except the Fire Sages. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Incredible. I looked too. Shayu is not there. Which makes sense because he's <gasps> imprisoned, I believe, because he's a traitor. Yeah. So yep. I was like, I wonder if, because, you know, sometimes you just like have a character design. And you're like, yeah, throw them in. They don't have any lines, whatever. I did not see yeah. Shayu in there. And I looked quite intently. So if you saw him in there, let us know. But as far as I can tell, he was definitely not there. Good thought to check. Yeah. The siblings move to the long plaza before the coronation temple. Azula shrugs off her robes and faces her brother, her movements languid and sloppy. I'm sorry it has to end this way, brother. Zuko stares back at her from his calm stance. No, you're not. She smiles and spins, sending a massive blast of blue fire towards Zuko. Zuko's own stream of orange fire meets hers and the two colors roar into the sky. Azula leaps forward, unleashing a volley of fire attacks as Zuko blocks and counters, each sibling's fire made more powerful by the comet. As they fight, nearby buildings begin to burn. Zuko draws on his lessons from the firebending masters, remaining calm and in control throughout the fight. Azula, however, begins to unravel. Panting, she calls on her fire to skate across the ground at Zuko, circling him with attack after attack that forces him to go on the defensive. Finally, Zuko spins on the ground and bends an unexpected whirl of fire that takes Azula by surprise. She's hit and tumbles head over heels across the plaza. Azula stands, panting heavily, an angry grimace on her face. No lightning today, Zuko taunts. What's the matter? Afraid I'll redirect it? An unhinged Azula grins at him. Oh, I'll show you lightning. She begins weaving threads of lightning with irregular movements as Zuko prepares himself with a calming breath across the plaza. But at the last moment, Azula's eyes dart to the side at Katara. The princess unleashes the full force of her attack at the unprotected waterbender. Zuko realizes too late and throws himself in front of the lightning. He takes it into himself, the hasty movement meaning he doesn't have much time to redirect it and it stays too long in his body before he lets it shoot into the sky. He falls to the ground, and a horrified Katara tries to run to his side, but is blocked by another attack from Azula. The princess advances on them, laughing maniacally. The design of Azula at this point has changed so much. She looks more like the Joker, in my opinion, Oh gosh, she does yes, herself. Yes, she does. Her pupils are just like pinpoints. Like It gives her that much more maniacal look. Her smile mm-hmm. is widened. It looks like she applied lipstick on like incorrectly. I don't know anything yeah. about applying lipstick. Let's just get that out of there. But like it is like, yeah, overdone. It's outside of the lines of her lips, it seems. Yes, yes. And her mouth seems to have gotten larger as a result of it, too. So mm-hmm. it's just these movements. It's really kind of like almost amplifying 
her body type, which is like, she's rather thin anyways, but it, I feel like she's extra lanky in these movements because they're so erratic and it's just yeah. like... Makes her look more gaunt. Yeah, exactly. That's mm-hmm. a wonderful way to put it. She looks like more gaunt. And you kind of realize that all of that control that she had was limiting her firebending. Mm. It kind of brings me back to Zhang Zhang's words. Like, Aang made a powerful fire blast by accident and didn't have any control over it. But it's the mm-hmm. control of firebending that, or at least the control that the Fire Nation has kind of like been teaching their young and their kids that powers it down a bit. And we're Mm. seeing that here. Like the more out of control that Azula gets, it seems like the more powerful her firebending is. And it's on par with the true form of firebending that Zuko learned from the masters. You know, I subconsciously noticed that because while, yeah, there's a comet that's boosting their firepower, Azula seems to be bending equally between her feet and her hands. Yeah. Every movement that she makes she has a, a wake of blue fire following her from her feet. And then on top of that, she's bending blasts at her brother that are just as large. So yeah, I think that her unhinging has unleashed her fire to almost dangerous levels because it's just, she's giving it everything she's got. Yeah. And that's kind of a trope too, right? Like it's the Hulk trope, essentially. You lose your mm-hmm. mind and you're just made of rage and anger and spite and all the negative emotions. And while you're getting more powerful, you're losing your focus. And that's usually your downfall. Yep, Yep, exactly. A couple more things about this scene, which is probably one of my favorite scenes in the entire show, mostly because of the music. The music and sound design for this fight was inspired by the Ghost in the Shell and Blade Runner music, Mm. particularly in pairing the slow tempo and melancholy mood with an intense action scene and then filtering down the sound of the fire effects so that the score can come through. And I also think that helps to underline just how ferocious this fight is and the senselessness of the destruction and also the sadness of just the fact this is two siblings effectively battling to the death. Yeah. And it's as dark as it is to say this, it's beautiful. Like the fight itself. Gorgeous. Oh man. Just the contrast between the two fires, Mm -hmm. the difference in composure between brother and sister, the confidence that Zuko has versus just the pure unhinged crazy for lack of a better term from Azula. Mm -hmm. It's just like, it's what you wanted to see this whole time. Like, I feel like Mike and Brian were just like, hey, you want to see Ozai and Aang fight this whole three books, right? And we're all like, no, we want to see the brother-sister fight. And <laughs> and they delivered. Well, so while they didn't really give that up as like the crescendo, right? Like we got this at the end of mm-hmm. part three. It was like such a great piece of the puzzle that finally fit in. Yeah, it's the big fight of this episode. And it makes the finale feel more satisfying to me to have these layers of climax. So we have the climax between Zuko and Azula with their Agni Kai. Then we have the climax between Ozai and Aang with their fight. And so it's just, it keeps on going. And so you're constantly, like your emotions are getting ramped up and you're getting super invested so that by the end, you finally can come down and you're like, wow, that was an experience. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's at this point, if you're wondering, but Greg, do you like Azula yet? The answer is I'm getting warmer on her. But not quite yet there. Okay. The dial has moved a little bit, but we're not quite there. I wouldn't say I like her yet as a character. Okay. 
progress, though. Progress. Progress Progress has been made. (laughs) A final note before we move back over to Aang and Ozai is just, I want to call attention to the fact that Azula and Zuko have completely flipped. We first meet Azula and she is very contained, strong, perfect. Yeah. Very focused on strategy and power. And Zuko was the one who was struggling to find his way, who was still working on mastering firebending. And now we see their roles completely flipped. Azula is the one that's falling apart. And Zuko is standing his ground and using calculated defensive techniques to beat her. In addition to that, he also, if you notice, uses Zhao's hand motions to dissipate one of Azula's attacks with his hands clasped and his two forefingers pointed at the ground. That's a Zhao move. Oh, I thought that looked familiar. Mm-hmm. I love a good Zhao move. Yep. I miss that guy. <laughs> I know, I do too. <laughs> <laughs> and then Azula does a massive fire blast in the Crossroads of Destiny. And we see that making an appearance here also from Zuko. Yeah. Zuko appears to also draw a lot of inspiration in this battle, as far as I can tell, from the other elements, which was really kind of cool. I found that he grounded himself more than several times during this fight. Lightning redirection is based in principle from waterbending. And when he's moving, he's doing so fairly light-footed, which kind of gives me that like air nomad kind of quality. So... It's really cool kind of just to see like all of these experiences that he's had lead up to this one moment, the fight of his life right now. Yep. And it shows that he's learned. He's learned so much from his journey. And it's one of those things where it's strongest if you see those things and you're not told. Without a word, we can see how much he's learned. Yeah. Yeah. Great storytelling. Like master full storytelling right there. Completely. Yeah. I know. We return to Aang and Ozai's fight in the rock column forest. Aang is doing his best to dodge Ozai's attacks. The young airbender leaps and glides from column to column, using rock and water wherever he can to block Ozai's firebending. But even with Aang's additional bending, the Phoenix King is a fierce and persistent enemy that keeps him on his toes. Finally, Ozai bends a crackling barrage of lightning that Aang is forced to redirect. Using the lesson that Zuko gave him, he takes in the lightning, passes it through his core, and is about to redirect it at Ozai when he realizes that the blast could kill him. The Phoenix King realizes this as well and has a moment of worry as he stares down his own attack. But at the last moment, Aang moves his arm to the side and releases the lightning harmlessly into the sky. The young airbender collapses to his knees and Ozai takes that moment to attack. Aang is able to block his fire with a wall of earth, but is knocked off his pillar, out of the forest, and into the water. The Phoenix King gives Aang no chance to recover before he jets across the water with his firebending, meeting him on the shore just as he bends a ball of earth around himself for protection. Ozai cackles. You're weak, just like the rest of your people. They did not deserve to exist in this world, in my world. Prepare to join them. Prepare to die. Ozai was peeing in his pants. When he saw what Aang did. <laughs> yes, that he impression, was. He was just like, I don't think he knew that was possible. Yeah, he was not expecting that at all. He was like, oh, I just got played. Oops. Well, <laughs> this is the end for me. <laughs> uh, and then, yeah, then Aang does exactly what we all knew he would, which mm-hmm. is just redirect it off into the sky somewhere just safely. Yep, and spare him. And mm-hmm. spare him. Yeah, which Ozai immediately views as weakness. Yep. He takes advantage of that for sure. 
And this kind of calls back to what you were saying about how Aang doesn't want to hurt him. He doesn't want to kill Ozai. So all of his movements so far have been on the defensive. But also there's this great depiction of reality here too, where Aang is still a kid. He's only just our learning bending outside of his native air bending. And Ozai, in contrast, has a lot of experience and a lot of years on him. And he's yeah. amped up by the comet. So he's super powered. As a result, we would kind of expect the fight to go the way that it does, where a grown man is trying to murder this child and Aang's just stuck on the defensive, flying around and avoiding and dodging. And he gets this one chance to kill Ozai with the lightning redirection. And after that, he isn't going to or doesn't get another opening until his next phase. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm going to correct myself live right now. Ozai knows that it's possible because Zuko did it to him. Not a few weeks or months or however time works in Avatar prior back in the throne room. What I'm going to say, I'm going to amend my joke for everyone. Ozai's face was thinking, what does everyone know how to do this now? <laughs> yeah, I do think the surprise is there because yes, he knows Absolutely. Zuko can do it, but I don't think he was necessarily expecting Zuko to teach Aang how to do that. Yeah. Or he didn't think that far ahead, which yeah, I think like while Ozai has been planning this whole this slaughter very carefully, I think that he's not great at thinking in the moment and he's a lot better at taking a step back and thinking through things that way. So mm. while he's fighting, he's he's very reactionary. He's also very arrogant because he has the power of the comet at his disposal. So yep. he's like, I'm going to do this move. It's his ultimate move. He doesn't think that anything bad can come of it. And then when Aang does the movements to redirect, he's just like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I made a miscalculation. Oops. So that that's my correcting myself live before we get an email saying, but Greg, I, said, I know, I know, I know. I got it. Thank you. <laughs> Good catch. Well, that is the end of that episode. So let's roll right into part four of the finale. Avatar Aang. <laughs> Sorry, I know. I crying again in the corner. That much closer to I the know. end. <laughs> this episode was also written by Aaron Ehas, Michael Dante DiMartino, and Brian Kanetsko, and was directed by Joaquim Dos Santos. And we're actually going to restructure the episode a little bit. So I'm not going to go play by play, cut by cut, but I'm going to kind of group up the actions based on the characters. So I'm going to start us on the roof of the airship where Sokka is still determined to complete the mission of stopping the airships from destroying the Earth Kingdom. He instructs Toph to bend the metal rudder of the ship to the sides so that the ship spirals and slams into the others. Toph spits into her hands and digs her fingers into the rudder, bunching the metal together to bend it. And it works. The ship swerves to the side and collides with the ship next to it, then hits another. Sokka asks Toph if he's ever mentioned how sweet it is that she invented metal bending. And Toph replies, pleased, that he could stand to mention it more. At that moment, a hatch opens next to them and a firebending soldier climbs out. Sokka pulls Toph after him and they run along the airship to avoid his attacks. Sokka pulls out his sword and stabs it into the balloon of the airship as he and Toph go over the side. The sword cuts through the balloon all the way down until it eventually slides out and he and Toph free fall through the air. Sokka lands on a metal platform and barely holds on to Toph as she dangles precariously below him. As he's trying to figure out what to do, two more soldiers appear on platforms on either side and ready themselves for an attack. Sokka quickly comes up with a plan. He pulls out his boomerang and throws it at one soldier, then kicks his sword into his hand and throws it at the other. The sword slices through the platform and both it and the soldier fall. 
though the soldier dangles from his safety rope while the sword falls to the ground. Bye, space sword, Sokka says sadly. <sighs> I was I was crushed, actually. Yeah. I was crushed that he lost his sword. I hope they launched a search party for his sword and went through the forest and found it for him. I hope so. I don't think they did. I, I think losing the space sword is actually very pivotal to Sokka as a character because mm. when they introduced the sword, I think they meant to introduce Sokka as more of a as even more of a fighter than he already is. But giving him like a space sword kind of just makes him the space sword guy and he doesn't have any real skills of his own. Kind of like how Zuko is the firebending guy and Katara is the mm. waterbending woman. Like that's just like a part of them. But I think a lot of people really latched on to Space Sword Sokka. So him losing that, he still has all of his abilities that he learned from Pandao. He just doesn't have a fancy sword anymore. Yeah, I can see that because he has the knowledge. So he could pick up anything. He could pick up a stick yeah. and still be able to use his sword skills. Yeah. So I think the Space Sword was a crutch for Sokka to feel special. Mm. Ultimately, is what I think where I land on that. And by losing it, he's going to come to that conclusion where he doesn't need it to be special. He has yeah. these skills and it, his contribution to the team isn't just his sword fighting abilities. It's his planning abilities. It's his intelligence as far as inventing goes. It's all of these yeah. things. It's his sense of humor, which they reminded us during the Sokka's Master episode. Mm -hmm. So all those things. Boomerang, on the other hand, I am very, oh. <laughs> very sad and angry that Boomerang did not come back. I know. It's the one time Boomerang didn't come back. If we don't get an art house short <laughs> animated film about, and we talked about this, I think, I don't remember what we talked about it on, of just Boomerang's journey to make it back to Sokka and have Sokka, this is a spoiler ending for everyone. It's this like, let's say 10 to 15 minute short where the boomerang goes from owner to owner to owner and then it finally reaches back to Sokka. Oh, yeah. But Sokka's dead and it's his gravestone and it lands <gasps> on there. Oh, that'd be so sad. But I'd also cry and I'd love it. It's so perfect though. Because boomerang <laughs> always is. does come back. It's just a matter of time. You know, there's actually a surprising amount, not surprising in a bad way, but there are a lot of story threads that don't get resolved by the end of this show. Yeah. And Boomerang is one of them. And I think it's just the perfect opportunity for Avatar Studios to pick up where they left off and give us some closure for those. Yeah. It's one of those things where I feel like if you're not attached to Sokka, you probably like I'm very much attached to Sokka. I've made no secret of this. I made no secret of this. I've made no claims <laughs> Wait, otherwise. I'm just attached to this guy. Like I had no idea. I'm very invested in his story, clearly, because he loses a boomerang <laughs> and I am torn up about it. Yep. But like they can do little things like that for each character and it'll mean something different to like mm -hmm. the fan base, I feel. So I would just really like that closure. I feel like everyone got that Blue's Clues closure with Steve coming back and just apologizing oh. for leaving so abruptly. <laughs> I would like yeah. this with Boomerang, please. Yeah. That's all I want. I support that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the two soldiers have been taken care of, but soon more appear. Sokka's grip on Toph's hand begins to slip and he tells his friend that he doesn't think Boomerang's coming back. It looks like this is the end. But before Toph can even respond to his words, another airship appears from the side and collides into theirs. Sokka and Toph fall onto its balloon and Toph asks what happened. Did Boomerang come back? Sokka looks up and sees Suki riding the side of the airship, 
holding a rope that she's used to bend its rudder to the side. No, Sokka replies, Suki did. I don't know if you caught Suki's expression during that. She was on cloud nine. It was, I think, like an Indiana Jones moment. It was like she was in her element. Yeah, 100%. She did not have a worry in her mind (laughs) when she was surfing on a war balloon. (laughs) Yep. Hundreds and hundreds of feet in the air. Very confident. Miles in the air, maybe even. I don't know how high they were. Great time. Just can't airbend, can't do anything. It was almost as if they were kind of teasing us back at Boiling Rock with how effortlessly she kind of climbed to get the warden. Mm -hmm. They were kind of like, you saw her kind of in on Kiyoshi Island. This is really what she can kind of do. But no, no, really, this is what she can do. (laughs) And it's so impressive. And at first, I thought the facial expression was an animation mistake. But the more I thought of it and the more I thought of Suki as a character... And how powerful and just like an absolute legend that she is. I was like, all right, that makes sense. She's just having mm-hmm. this is a playtime for Suki is what this is. <laughs> playtime for Suki. I love it. <laughs> Back in the Wulong forest, Aang is still inside his earth ball, but the heat and pressure of Ozai's attack have become to seep through. The young avatar sweats and struggles to hold the rock together until it finally breaks open. Aang is knocked back into a rock column, a protrusion digging into the old wound on his back. Aang sees a dizzying line of his past lives, each pair of eyes glowing blue with avatar power. He remembers the moment he lost access to his cosmic self, to his avatar state, and that cosmic form pulses against a backdrop of endless space. Ozai walks up to the smoldering pile of rocks, taunting the young avatar to come out. He leans over the rocks and is about to finish his threat when a hand shoots out of the rubble. It grabs Ozai by the beard and the body of Aang follows, arrow tattoos and eyes glowing with light. Ozai attempts to bend a killing blow, but Avatar Aang easily deflects his hand and blows him back with one blast of airbending. The Phoenix King tumbles across the ground and slams into a rock column. When he looks up again, Aang is levitating in the sky with a sphere of air around him. The Avatar roars and powerful streams of fire erupt from his mouth and each of his limbs. The fire rearranges itself into a ring around the air sphere as both rock and water surge up from the ground to join it. Soon, Avatar Aang is surrounded by each element in a powerful display as he glares down at the Phoenix King. I don't know about you or anyone listening, but the first time I watched this scene a decade ago, whenever it was, a very long time ago, I was kind of like, really? Just someone just needed to like tap him on the back there and he would have been okay. And I was kind of like, I, you I call got that this, a tap? I mean, <laughs> I'm being facetious, obviously, but <laughs> it was just kind of like, really, you just get like a, a chiropractor in there and he would have been a okay, just crack the back <laughs> in that specific spot. Uh-huh. There's a couple different elements now that we've been pun intended there. You're welcome. There's your first actually there official. It is. There it is. <sighs> I can breathe again. Saved. Saved. A couple things that now that we've been really digging into these episodes in a lot more detail and, and learning about things as we go, I'm reminded of Guru Patik at that moment, the moment of impact mm-hmm. where I think spiritually, psychologically, and physically, there was muck blocking that chakra pool. Mm-hmm. And Aang, while he understands the principles of how chakra runs, I don't think he was prepared to clear out all three of those. Yeah. So he's kind of in that moment of impact. He's getting the physical kind of out of the way. And he's kind of realizing a little bit like, I need to be decisive now. Like this is kind of what's happening. And he's able to 
clear out that muck, so to speak, from his chakra pool, which then mm-hmm. kicks in the avatar state, which means that every single avatar who is like, you got to kill this sucker, takes <laughs> over. Yep. And they're like, <laughs> move aside, yeah. avatar Aang. <laughs> we got this. Got this. Oh, man. Yeah, I love that interpretation. Also, because I think back to when Katara was healing him on the Fire Nation ship, and she makes a comment about there being a lot of twisted energy in that spot. Yeah. And she tries to pull it out, and it triggers something very similar to this, where he recalls what happened in the crystal caves and makes that comment about like, oh, wow, I didn't just go down. I, I died for a minute. And because of that, it feels like a callback and takes it that one step further to say, yes, there was something there. And this movement cleared it out and connected whatever was unconnected. And now he's back online. Yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. In Bossing Say, the fight to reclaim the city is still underway. Boomy bends himself out of the ground on one of the streets and is met with a row of Fire Nation Tundra tanks. He bends large rocks into each of the bending panels to jam them, then launches the tanks into the air with pillars so that they fall on top of each other in a tall stack. Across the city, Iroh stands in front of the palace where a banner of the Fire Nation hangs over the entrance. The Dragon of the West ignites the banner and watches it burn to ash with a satisfied smile. The sigil of the Earth Kingdom is revealed, signifying the liberation of the city. He did it. Iroh fulfilled his destiny. All right, go to the Jasmine Dragon now, Iroh. You can can rest easy, friend. (laughs) Time to retire. Yeah. That was just very satisfying to see Iroh just burn down that uh, that banner and just kind of oh, look at it. Considering also, again, no one needs any reminding of this, but I'm going to do it anyways. Considering that Iroh originally thought that his destiny was to put that banner there. Yep. It's just like another character arc comes full circle. It's closed. We're good to go. Mm. And that brings me joy. That feels yes, so good. Absolutely. In the Fire Nation capital, Zuko finally rouses and groans as he tries to push himself off the ground. Katara again tries to run to him with healing water at her fingertips, but Azula's blue fire cuts her off. The deranged princess chases after the waterbender with fire and lightning until Katara ducks for cover under a covered walkway. She lands on a metal grate and sees water flowing below. When she spots chains nearby, she has an idea. Azula pursues her to the covered walkway and stalks toward her across the metal grate. Katara waterbends at her to ensure she rolls into position and then bends a curtain of water through the grate that freezes them both in place. With an exhale, Katara melts the water surrounding her own body and navigates herself through the ice to chain Azula's arms together. She then attaches the chain to a metal ring on the ground and releases the water. After ensuring the chains are secure, she finally runs to Zuko and begins healing his wound. Zuko opens his eyes when he feels the pain lessen and smiles weakly at Katara. He thanks her, and with tears running down her cheeks, she says, I think I'm the one who should be thanking you. Azula screams and sobs nearby, breathing fire in angry bursts as she flails in her chains. Katara and Zuko stare at what's left of her, witnessing her agony in silence. Now, this is the last time we see Azula. Dear listeners, this is the moment where I weigh in. I'm making a big to-do about if I like Azula or not. (laughs) It's been building up for the whole book, so I'm on board. Let's hear it. In this moment, Azula is more of a person than she's ever been. Mm -hmm. And I like her. It feels weird to say. I like her as a character, but I, I think I only liked her because of her character arc. Typically, I'm a big fan of redemption story arcs. Like, I'm a sucker for him. You give me any sort of redemption arc and I'm just going to eat it up and just like ask for more. 
But what's interesting mm-hmm. is Azula doesn't have a redemption arc. She kind of has like a, it's not like a reverse redemption arc. It's just very interesting. It's like a de-evolution from perfection into being a person. A broken person. Yeah. But like, it's almost ironic that her father dubs himself as the Phoenix King when it, really that's what's happening to Azula right now. Mm-hmm. She reached this quote unquote perfect state. Her firebending was perfect. Her jokes were perfect as far as her father was concerned. She got everything that her brother wanted. So she was leading the perfect life, but it's not what she wanted. She just thought she wanted it, I think. Mm -hmm. So she doesn't know how else to be. So she's broken down to her base components right now, which is anger and sadness. But only from that can she rebuild herself. Really? She hit rock bottom. There's nowhere to go but up. And I like that. And it's funny you should say that because the team has been quoted to say they always wanted a redemption arc for Azula. Yeah. That was one of their ideas for if they ever had a follow-up season to explore that. Hmm. So I love that. And maybe they'll eventually do that very thing. I hope so. I think she does make an, an appearance in the comics. I don't know what the story is. They could have fit her redemption arc in there. We will soon find out. Yeah, we But will. if not, that's always a, a fallback plan for Avatar Studios. It really, yeah, it could be. I think also that might be, now that you're connecting my words in a much more intelligent manner than I, I can, I think it's the beginning of the redemption arc that I'm latching onto, which is why I'm really like, now I like you. Now <laughs> you're going to try to redeem yourself, maybe, possibly, potentially. Interesting. This intrigues me. Uh-huh. I think what I didn't like about Azula was the confidence that seemed earned only through who her father was. Mm -hmm. And I don't like that. I don't like rich, spoiled kids. Sorry, rich, spoiled kids, if you listen to this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Well, now that we're here and now that you've given us your assessment, I will say what you just said Mm -hmm. is exactly why I like Azula. Okay. Okay. So now if you go back and you, we're going to do this, by the way, we're going to watch the whole series again and do a series recap after our book three recap. Now, when you go back and you watch through it, I'm curious to see if you will have a newfound appreciation for Azula because you will watch her be at her top, her highest point as a person, and then gradually watch her fall from that high point and break down into this rock bottom that we see her in. It adds extra context to her character that I think you're lacking the first time around. Yeah. Yeah. I think ultimately, I'm going to say this now, my prediction is going to be that I don't like Azula as a character, but I like her story arc. And I think that's Mm -hmm. an important distinction because she's very like, prim proper spoiled and all that and that's just not my bag if that's your bag more power to you absolutely like i'm not here to say you can't like azula for whatever reason that's just my personal take on it but her the way her story was crafted is just well done yeah now that we're at the end of it here or at least as far as the animated series is concerned mm-hmm. and it's just very beautiful to see and it doesn't hurt that they spared no expense of the animation of her flailing around, just like trying to lash out Ugh. at anything. Heartbreaking. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I think I honestly conflate characters with their character arcs. So yep. when I see Azula and I say, I like her, I'm saying that because I like her character arc. To me, they're like one in the same. And that, that's actually, I'm glad you said that. That's the way that I felt about Yanra. I, I think I said in the episode, I like Yanra. I don't like Yanra. He's a terrible human being. I like his character arc. I like that he's this horrible individual. I do too. But he potentially is that way because of how his mother treated him. 
maybe. Or if you want to take out all of the guesstimation, all of the speculation, all of the headcanons, he got his comeuppance because his mom treats him horribly and devalues him as a person. Yeah, exactly. I like his story too, because you're right. It's satisfying to see someone who rose to power in ruthlessness and viciousness and did terrible things in the name of his nation and his position. Yeah. Get to the end of his service, retire, and then end up being controlled and belittled and suppressed by his own mother, leading a miserable existence. It's like karma. It's just like, heck yeah, you deserve that. (laughs) You're you're a terrible human being. So when you say I like Bian Ra, I mean same. I love character arcs that are very dynamic like that. Yeah. Yeah. I've been learning so much about just myself and how I look at stories as well, just from doing this podcast where like... Yeah, me too. It's very easy. And I I think that like I've done that a lot in the past where I've been like, I like this character, but I don't like the character. I just like his story. I like what happened to him and or her in the events of this individual. Mm -hmm. So I'm as we go into the comics and as we go into Korra, I'm going to be a bit more mindful of that and see, ask myself that question. Do I really like this character or do I like the situation that they're presented in? Or the other way around, do I really not like Azula or do I just not like the circumstances that she was in? You know, like things like that. I've had the same thoughts actually. And I think that it's really good that we spent this much time and attention to Avatar The Last Airbender, the series, because going into Korra, it is common knowledge and common public opinion that there are certain parts of the Korra series that are just not that great. Yeah. They're frustrating. They're weaker than other parts of the story. And I remember feeling that way when I first watched the first two seasons or whatever. So this time around, I'm hoping that by putting so much attention into analyzing the characters and the story for Avatar, I'll be able to do that and maybe find a newfound appreciation for aspects of Korra that just you know, flat out frustrated me the first time around. I, I think we'll be able to. I remember mm-hmm. a big part of Korra that was a draw for me was the lineage of the characters and seeing who had children afterwards and who didn't and, you know, all that kind yeah. of seeing older versions of the characters. And a lot of that was lost because it was such a long time from when I finished Avatar The Last Airbender versus when I started Korra. Yep. So I feel like that's going to be a big draw for us is just seeing the evolution of the world hopefully being a bit more accepting of it as we've detailed how technologically advanced really the Fire Nation became in such a short amount of time and hopefully being able to just like headcanon in that that pro bending makes sense. <laughs> hopefully. Yep. 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 We'll see. Yeah. Heading back over to the scene that just happened. I actually want to point out the fact that it is incredibly impressive that Katara was able to beat Azula, who Mm -hmm. on a non-comet day is a prodigy and a master firebender. But on the comet and also, you know, kind of going psychotic is very dangerous and very powerful. It's a small detail, but if you notice, Katara actually used up all of her bending water fending off one of Azula's attacks. I saw that, yeah. That's where she finally had to get really creative and use the water that she found under the grate and come up with a plan to trap Azula because she knew she wasn't going to be able to outpower her or outbend her. So mega props to Katara for being so innovative. And then also the fact that she came there with Zuko. Zuko started the series alone, trying to find his destiny and defeat the Avatar. Azula had her family, had her nation, had her best friends. Now she's going into this fight with no one. And Zuko's coming in with a trusted ally and friend in Katara. Really shows how far Zuko's come, but it's also a nice little like flip-flop foil 
to compare their two journeys and just show how far each person has come from the beginning. Yes. How the turntables have turned. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Oh, man. I do want to point out very quickly before we move on that Katara did not waver in her decision to no longer bloodbend. Yes. Oh, man. I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that was um, something that just kind of dawned on me as you were kind of reading that description. I was like, we're so focused on Aang not killing Ozai that we've almost forgotten, almost forgotten that Katara has something very similar with bloodbending. She could have easily ended that just by taking control. Mm-hmm. Marching her, puppeting her, puppeteering her all the way over to the grates and then whoosh, water up, you're good to go. But no, she found a different way, which... I feel like we've heard this lesson before, but just like it was another way. That's Mm. so nice. Yes. Yes. So that was really cool to see. To see that the um the two really are meant for each other. Any way I can throw salt in the wound (laughs) of Zutara shippers. I'm just gonna do it. I don't have that many more opportunities. So Oh my gosh. I know. I had the same moment when we get to the very end and the episode wraps up the way that it does. It was very satisfying. I felt very, you know, validated. But at the same time, we love you, Zatara shippers. We understand your fascination and fixation and love for that ship. But Absolutely. At the same time, it's just not canon. Same time, it's wrong. <laughs> That's a little excessive. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. I'm just. I'm just. I hope. I hope you all know. This is just light teasing, is what this is. It's just a little jabbing right here because I will. I've never admitted this to anyone in my life. So I'm going to say this right now. I was originally a Zutara shipper, but I've, uh, I've changed my mind since changed yes. my mind. Yes. Oh yeah. my gosh. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I'm, I feel like it's not that surprising considering, well, I did really relate to Zuko a lot in the, when mm-hmm. I first watched it because I just listened to Lincoln Park all the time and I felt very edgy and very like, no one understands me. <laughs> but as I like kind of got to know myself a little bit more, I started relating to Sokka more and more and more and eventually Iroh as well. So like that was kind of, I think a lot of kids that were like similar to me also felt like a kindred spirit with Zuko, but it's also because he's just so darn cool and like, you just want to be so cool all the time. So I don't know, but yep. I, I was, but I've, I've since changed. Actually, I changed my mind when I first started watching book three, like mm-hmm. all those years ago. That's one that really kind of just like flipped for me. So I used to yeah. be one of you. So I can say things like, you're wrong. Just kidding. I shouldn't be saying that. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you saying that reminded me. I think I was the same way when I first yeah. watched the series because they entertained the concept or the possibility of Katara and Zuka getting together through book two. I think I did entertain the idea, entertain the yeah. ship. And I, yeah, I could see it. I yeah. think they would be interesting together. But then as soon as I hit book three and things really started solidifying with May and Zuko and yeah. then Aang and Katara, that's where I was like, okay, I like the canon ships probably the most. I actually think that Katara Zuko was one of the first times where I kind of realized that like you can be friends with someone and not be in a relationship with that individual. And also get all of like the personality growth benefits from being friends. And it doesn't make it like cheaper or doesn't make it like any less so than if you were actually in a relationship with that individual. That is such a good point. And one that we surprisingly haven't touched on yet, I don't think, because we did a whole episode of Avatar on shipping. 
and talking about our favorite ships, the most unexpected ships. So if you haven't seen that, you can find it on our YouTube at youtube.com slash Avatar the podcast. But I think that is probably my favorite part about the way that they ended up because with this show coming out in the early 2000s, that was such an important lesson. It was, yeah. To see and to learn as a young girl who was surrounded by very sexist, very gender normative shows and movies that basically pushed that message of if you are in a relationship with someone who is of the opposite gender, it will turn into romance at some point. You cannot be friends. You cannot be just friends. And yeah, a lot of people believe that in the world, which is fine. But it was something that I had to also learn on my own over the years. And it was kind of difficult because I feel like this was one of the very few examples that showed that it was possible. And you can have very rich, close, growth-oriented relationships with someone and you don't have to be dating them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's like an important lesson for men and teenage boys and guys and all that, like anyone really to learn like... 100%. Both ways. Always. Yeah. Like the next evolution of our friendship doesn't have to be a relationship, you know, like in the romantic sense, like Mm -hmm. something can just stay a friendship and that's completely fine. And, you know, if you don't want to be in a relationship, that's also completely fine. There's nothing wrong with any of it. Literally anything. Mm -hmm. Any of the friendships, relationships that we've seen in Avatar The Last Airbender, except for Ozai's relationship with his daughter and son. (laughs) And wife. And wife. Thank you. (laughs) All that's, it's completely okay. It's fine. Like there's different ways to grow as an individual. And I think that's the Mm -hmm. point of Zutara. I think they were both the best versions of themselves coming out of that because they just knew each other and they were friends with each other and they accepted each other as equals, peers, and friends. Yep. Completely. That was a really great tangent. I'm glad we had that. We're going to get back to the story by hopping over to Aang in the rock forest. Mm. At this point, Aang is filled with the power of the Avatar spirit and he charges at Ozai. With incredible power, he launches the former Fire Lord into the air and Ozai goes on to evade his attacks as best as he can by launching himself into the air with his own fire bending. But Aang pursues him. As Ozai weaves through the columns of rock, Aang deluges him with water and knocks columns over in his path. The Phoenix King can barely evade the Avatar's attacks. And finally, Aang bends a stream of water around Ozai's leg and slams him down on top of a rock. He bends earthen restraints around Ozai's arms and legs and looms over him in all his power. Aang speaks and his voice is joined by the otherworldly sound of all the past Avatars. They address the fallen leader of the Fire Nation. Fire Lord Ozai, you and your forefathers have devastated the balance of this world, and now you shall pay the ultimate price. Ozai stares in naked horror and fear as Aang raises his arms and a stream of every element weaves into a great and terrible weapon of death. With a roar, Aang drives his arm down and Ozai closes his eyes. But at the last moment, the glow leaves Aang's body and he returns to himself. The elements dissipate and Ozai is splashed with harmless water and rock. Aang releases Ozai from his earthen restraints and drifts down to the column, lost in his thoughts. No, he says, I'm not going to end it like this. Surprised but pleased, Ozai growls behind him. Even with all the power in the world, you are still weak. He lunges towards Aang, but Aang feels him with the seismic sense he learned from Toph. The Avatar kicks back his leg, bending a rock pillar into Ozai's hands that his fire shoots harmlessly into the sky. The rock closes around Ozai's hand, and when Ozai tries to attack with his other hand, Aang bends another pillar into place. 
The Avatar pulls the rock into the ground, dragging the Fire Lord back and opening his posture for Aang to advance in the cover of his bending. Aang places his thumb on the Fire Lord's chest and forehead and closes his eyes. He recalls what the Lion Turtle told him, how in the era before the Avatar, it was not the elements that were bended, but the energy within all creatures. Knowledge had passed from the Lion Turtle to Aang when they touched, and it is that knowledge that Aang calls upon now. His head tilts back and his mouth falls open, and the blue light of his energy beams out of his eyes and mouth. Aang's energy calls to Ozai's, and soon orange light pours out of the Fire Lord's own eyes and mouth. Then, Aang's body, followed by Ozai's, slowly become consumed by their energy. The Lion Turtle's words echo in Aang's mind as he holds his thumbs to Ozai's heart and third eye. To bend another's energy, your own spirit must be unbendable, or you will be corrupted and destroyed. As if echoing the self-doubt that has plagued Aang his whole journey, his energy folds in front of Ozai's. The Fire Lord's orange light begins overtaking Aang. It consumes his body and reaches his head where his own beams of blue light begin waning and weakening. But at the last moment before he is overtaken, Aang finds his strength and pushes his energy out through his own body, into Ozai's, and into a beam that pierces the sky. The energy fades and Ozai falls weakly to the ground. He tries to fire a bend at Aang, but nothing happens. He demands to know what Aang did to him, to which Aang replies, I took away your firebending. You can't use it to hurt or threaten anyone else ever again. Aang then walks to the edge of the column and stares out at the burning forest below. With one breath, he closes his eyes and accesses the Avatar state, drawing the power he needs to gently pull the tides over the land to extinguish the fire. That was a lot of words. That was a lot of description, but I felt like I needed to do justice to the ending because, oh my God, it is so powerful. Again, I think this episode, these last two episodes, part three and part four, are some of my favorite in the whole series. Yeah, they do what we wanted it to do, or they do what we wanted them to do this entire time. But better. (laughs) But better, yeah. They close off everyone's arcs, most everyone's arcs, successfully. Mm -hmm. They have this epic battle between Ozai and Aang. And we see little like hints of Aang kind of doing almost what Zuko did in the acting Kai. I swear, I might be crazy, but I swear... I saw Aang combine the water octopus. I can't remember what it's called. That yeah. movement with fire bending. He did fire octopus. He in totally the sky. did. <laughs> and I was like, what? That is insane. We see him consumed by rage. We hear the avatar state voice, which is always chilling and just like weird. And like, I don't like it. And I'm not supposed, I don't think we're supposed to like it. And I really don't. It's just like spooky. I like it for how uncomfortable it makes me. Yes. Yeah. 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 I should say that. (laughs) I like its execution, but I do not like it. It's just weird for uh, anyways. And the best thing is, remember what Aang's goofy plan was to stop the Fire Lord? Just glue him down so he can't. (gasps) He can't firebend anymore. (laughs) He actually glues down the Fire Lord. Wait, I've never made that connection before. Are you kidding? He does it. He does the thing he said he was going to do. And everyone was like, yeah, that sounds great, Chief. Good job. Oh, my God. They foreshadowed the ending with a joke. Yep. It's perfect. It's just on brand for Avatar. And I love it. Oh, my God. Absolutely. I'm like... At this point in the podcast recording, I'm like getting oversaturated with awesomeness. Yeah. My brain is like, Absolutely. it's like it's too full. There's too many good <laughs> no things more. to talk about. No more. 
Well, I do <laughs> yeah. have I do have a fun fact from the commentary just to really pile on a little bit. I'll yeah. make this one quick though. Uh, you'll notice that the fight was a lot of wide shots. It was very zoomed out. This mm-hmm. is because that Mike invited Brian over to watch TV on his brand new widescreen large TV. Oh. They watched Planet Earth and Brian was just like, I want to make shots like this. <laughs> and they did it and they realized, again, this is 2008. They realized why they didn't do this before is because on a smaller TV, which was more common 10 to 13 years ago, couldn't see anything. Yeah, because the aspect ratio was so square. Yep. This was before the days of widescreen TVs and theatrical releases with the black bars on the top and the bottom of the screen. Yep, exactly. So like, and also like TVs got cheaper too. I don't yeah. think it's a secret. Like you can go to Best Buy on, on Black Friday, which you'll know what it is in the States. And maybe even know because it's just an absolute mess. And you probably read about it on the internet all the time if you're not in the States. Um, mm-hmm. But you can get like a large 40 something inch television for like a hundred and something dollars. At some points. So like larger screens are more common now versus then where you got like maybe a square 20 something inch and that was considered large. So it's actually kind of interesting how that worked out because it's almost like they future proofed this scene specifically. Exactly. I was just thinking that. Yeah. They were ahead of the curve. They were, they were. And it, while it didn't work out as well for them at that point, the test of time is proving mm-hmm. otherwise. So it's really cool. Man. Well, on another production note... I did read that Brian knew that Aang was going to take Ozai's bending away in the final battle from the very beginning, early in production. But like we've touched on, they just didn't know how it was going to happen. So fun story, while writing the finale, he pitched the concept of Aang and Ozai's souls flipping inside out. Mike and Aaron thought that sounded cool, but they weren't sure how they would be able to visualize that. And so Brian's like, don't worry, I got this. I'll make it happen. So he sat down to sketch it out as a storyboard and soon realized that he would need to render the sequence in color to illustrate this crazy idea. That's where we got the orange and the blue light. And he did this knowing it was a risky move because using this as the climax meant that they were going to potentially need to do tedious retakes to get it right for the final animation. However, the story has a happy ending because the animators and composite artists at JM Animation nailed it. They took his storyboard and surpassed his hopes and expectations, and they didn't have to do a single retake. Oh, wow. They didn't do a single retake? Holy. Not a single one. And actually, if you look up his storyboard, it is beautiful, and it is exactly what you see in the show with like very minor adjustments. So he used orange and blue. He did the angles and the poses. It was very true to what the final version is. That's just like, that makes it even better for me. Yeah, super impressive. And finally, the concept of bookends. I love this. Mirroring symmetry. The first episode of the series starts with a beam of light shooting out of the iceberg. The final episode ends with a beam of light shooting into the sky. Mm -hmm. Love it. Love it. The first episode being titled The Boy in the Iceberg and the last episode being titled Avatar Egg. Avatar Egg. My heart can't take much more. Wow. Just Uh, bravo. Oh, man. Goals. Just yeah. storytelling goals. Mm-hmm. So the Fire Lord has been defeated. Suki, Sokka, and Toph find Aang on the column and pull the airship alongside it. As Sokka excitedly reenacts the fight with elaborate gestures and sound effects, Suki approaches the slumped Fire Lord and asks if Aang, you know, finished the job. 
Ozai growls that he's still alive and the Kyoshi warrior leans back in confusion and surprise. Aang tells his friends that he learned another way to defeat him and restore balance by taking his bending away. Toph comments that he has the craziest adventures when he disappears after he tells them about meeting the lion turtle. The friends come up with a few new nicknames for the fallen Phoenix King as the comet disappears over the horizon. Just going to say this really quickly. I could have done without this scene. Yeah, it was a little hokey after the epicness, but at the same time, I was watching it, had that reaction and went, well, it is a kid's show. It is like a, you know. It just feels like a Nickelodeon suit ran in while they were writing the script and it was like 15% more hokey please yeah for the children and they're like fine it's like the nicknames aren't particularly clever Mm-mm. that's why i didn't even talk about them yeah it's just like i don't know it didn't work for me especially after like all of the beauty that was that fight they just kind yeah. of give you this it's, it's like getting like in <laughs> It's like getting an ice cream sandwich after you've had like the best filet mignon of your life. Yeah. The quality isn't quite the same. Yeah. Yep. The next scene jumps ahead to later in the Fire Nation capital. Zuko struggles to get dressed with his bandaged chest when May appears and helps him. She reveals that her uncle pulled some strings to let her out of prison. And it doesn't hurt when the new Fire Lord is your boyfriend. So does this mean you don't hate me anymore? Zuko asks. I think it means I actually kind of like you, May responds. After they kiss, she adds, but don't ever break up with me again. They smile and embrace. And this is exactly why I ship them, just because they have like the same, same temperament, sense of humor, and they obviously love each other. Yeah, exactly. They're a great match. And I can't help but be sad for... That alternate world where Katara ends up with Zuko. Like that and whole, May's alone. And May's alone. No. May does not deserve to be alone. She's wonderful. Yeah, she is I wonderful. I really like her a lot. So I'm very happy that this happened. Me too. The day of Zuko's coronation is one the Fire Nation hasn't seen in generations. Members of each nation gather in the coronation plaza, including friends and family from the day of the invasion. Sokka and Katara are reunited with their father, who tells them he is the proudest father in the world. And he knows their mother would be very proud too. The Kyoshi warriors appear and the siblings discover that Tai Li is among them. Sokka tries to warn Suki, but she tells him that after bonding in prison and a few chi blocking lessons, the warrior said she could join the group. Inside the coronation temple, Aang and Zuko have a heart-to-heart before the ceremony. The prince shares that he can't believe that a year ago he was hunting Aang down and now Aang smiles and now they're friends, he finishes. Aang marvels at how different the world is now, and Zuko promises that it's going to be even more different, but they'll rebuild it together. The two friends hug, then emerge from the temple for the ceremony. When the crowd cheers for Zuko, he holds up a hand and directs their cheers to the real hero, the Avatar. Today, this war is finally over, Zuko announces. I promised my uncle I would restore the honor of the Fire Nation, and I will. The road ahead of us is challenging. A hundred years of fighting has left the world scarred and divided. But with the Avatar's help, we can get it back on the right path and begin a new era of love and peace. Zuko kneels and a fire sage approaches with a royal hairpiece. All hail Fire Lord Zuko, he says. The scene with Zuko and Aang, that little like when they were talking right before the coronation, was actually added after the fact. Was it? Mike and Brian kind of realized that Aang didn't really have a lot of scenes after the fight. And they were just like, "What (laughs) what what do we do? What do we do? So they kind of like, Put that in after the fact, just to be like, he's here, he's fine. Here's Aang, the main character. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. It works so well. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. Also in the um the scene where we saw the Kyoshi Warriors and all that, if you look in the background, Toph is talking to the Duke and I want to hear that conversation. Oh man, yep. I just want I don't want to know what they say to each other. I feel like it's nothing but sass and I I want to hear it. 100%. Of course it would be sass. Yep. After his coronation, Zuko visits the Fire Nation prison tower to see his father. Ozai sarcastically says he should count himself lucky that the new Fire Lord has graced him with his presence in his lowly prison cell. Zuko replies that he should count himself lucky that the Avatar spared his life. He then tells his father that banishing him was the best thing he could have done for Zuko's life. It put him on the right path. Perhaps his time in prison could do the same for Ozai. Ozai doesn't respond, but instead asks why Zuko is really there. Zuko leans down to look through the metal bars and says, where is my mother? Um, chills. I remember the first time I watched this, I was with a group of friends and I think we screamed at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Like, yes, thank you for acknowledging one of the biggest mysteries of the show. And thank you for hinting that we will eventually get an answer. Yeah. Well, as they tell it in the director's commentary, there's going to be like a post credit scene or something where it gives the answer. But Mike was like, no, it's too much. (sighs) Too it much would right be now. too much. <laughs> yeah. But I'm shocked that they were originally planning on doing that. Yeah. It was a big debate. They made it seem like where I feel like Brian and a bunch of other people were like, no, we should, we should. And Mike was just like, no, this is too long as it is. Like we got too many things going on. It's all mostly packed up. Yeah. This is a quote from them, not from me. So don't throw anything at me when I say this. Mike likes to say you can't always get what you want. You can't have mm. everything. So this is kind of Mike just being like, got all this stuff. You can't have everything. Sorry. Oh, I like that, actually. If their original intention was to have this scene with no plans of giving us the answer, like before the comics had been planned and approved. Yeah. That's a little devious. That's a little villainous on his part. And Mm -hmm. I I kind of like it. Yeah. But now we all know that you can go read the comics. You can get your answer. So if you want the answer... Keep on listening to Avatar the Podcast because we're going to cover all those. Yes, we will. Mm -hmm. And I can't wait because I have not read the end of that series. So I don't know what happened to his mom. Me neither. Life has moved on in Bossing Say. Earth Kingdom children play ball in the streets where tundra tanks still sit. But even with the remnants of war, there's an atmosphere of hope and peace. Team Avatar gathers in the Jasmine Dragon where Iroh plays the Sungi horn in Zuko Serves Tea. Sokka draws a picture at a table nearby, saying he wants something to remember the good times they've had together. Katara comes over to see it and complains that he gave her Momo's ears. Sokka corrects her, saying those are her hair loopies. Everyone else comes over and Zuko complains that his spiky hair makes him look like a porcupine. Mei says she looks like a man. And Suki asks why it looks like she's firebending. I thought it looked more exciting that way, Sokka says. Aang smiles and quietly leaves the room to stand on the patio overlooking the city. Katara soon joins him, and the two share a wordless moment of love, friendship, and devotion that ends in a kiss. The end. I will note, Katara kisses Aang, not the other uh-huh. way around. She does. Because her mind's made up. She's like, okay, war's done. I'm ready. Let's talk about our relationship. And by talking, I mean kissing. Mm-hmm. That's the best way to talk about relationships with your girlfriend. <laughs> yep. Smooching. Wow. Yay. It feels a little surreal that we finally got to the end. And this is the end of book three. And I think, I don't know what the time's going to be after we edit it, but I feel like this is the longest episode that we've ever done. Yep. It absolutely actually will be. And I'm a little winded. So we're going to 
wrap up this episode with our MVP moral of the episode and then our coming up next time in just a moment. But first, I want to point out that the orchestral version of the show's theme that plays at the end of these credits is my favorite version. Yeah. Hands down. Yep. I thought I heard tones of Cave of Two Lovers in the music at the end. Maybe it's just my brain being like, the two lovers finally got together. So, Brent, Greg, I think it's this. your brain. Yeah. Because it's I definitely the theme that. of the show, just with know. orchestral instruments. Yeah. Who is your MVP? My MVP. I think it has to be Aang. Yep. I was going to say that too. It has to be. I don't think there's any other decision to be made on that. He introduces the ability to turn off bending. Uh huh. He sticks to his convictions. He never wavers. He saves the world. Yeah. <laughs> he kind of saves the world. <laughs> like, I, I don't, think it earns MVP. I don't think you can just say like Sokka. <laughs> Sokka did a good job. He did. As what happened with last time. I think everyone, you know, deserves honorable mentions. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. Everyone did a great job. We're MVP status, but I think Aang, yeah, definitely deserves it over everyone else. Yeah. What about the moral of the episode? The moral of the episode we actually saw happen to two different characters. And it's a moral that was introduced to us very early on in the series. A wise King told us <laughs> that sometimes you just have to think a little differently in order to succeed. Mm. And that's exactly what both Aang and Katara did. Yep. They were outmatched in every sense of the word. They were presented with an option, the easy way or die. Mm -hmm. And they found a third option in that. And yep. more so than Katara, but I still want to make sure that we're including her because going up against Azula, as you said, was just impressive and, and super scary for her. It had to have been and would have been mm -hmm. very easy to just rely on bloodbending, but she didn't. Aang, it would have been very easy for him to just let the past avatars kill the Fire Lord and then technically, he's not really killing the Fire Lord. Therefore, he's still living that way of the monks. But that's still like, he's not a technicality kind of guy. Nope. So that would have irked him. So I think it's that there's always another option. And sometimes you yeah. just need to look for it. I love it. That's a good one. Yeah. I, I think I'm going to pull on an older moral of the episode and say that we're always stronger together. Yeah. Because this was always Aang's fight. This was always his mission, but he would not have been able to do it without the help of his friends, with the help of the other nations. And at the end, it really pulled it all together to see all the people they met along the way, swamp benders and Kyoshi warriors and all these different people gathered in the Fire Nation Plaza in the home of the people who have ravaged the world. And they're all joined together for this moment of victory together. Mm -hmm. And None of that would have happened without them banding together and working as a people versus a nation. Yes, absolutely. That was one of the themes that I was kind of thinking of too, is like better together. And it works in two different ways. Team came together. Everyone had their own part and they succeeded. Also Avatar State. <gasps> also Avatar State. Yep. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely. Good observation. Man. Well, those were heavy hitting and very appropriate for the end of book three. Yeah. Well, now that we are emotionally exhausted, <laughs> physically taxed, Ugh. and by that I mean me and my voice, it's slowly dying. Yes. We want to set some expectations and let you know what you can expect after this episode. So we are going to do a normal book three recap as we do after every book. 
After that, though, we are going to take a week off so we can take time to watch the entire series. Once we do that, we're going to have a series recap where we talk about our favorite moments, our MVP of the series, maybe? We have an MVP for the season, so maybe for the series, we will see. Some things we haven't discussed yet, some fun facts, some trivia that hasn't worked its way into one of our episodes. And after that, we are then going to move into the comics. The comics. Can't wait. So excited. Finally, the comics. For the most part, we are going to go chronologically, which means we're going to pick up where the show left off and continue our journey with our friends, Team Avatar. Once we get through the comics, we're going to move on to Korra. So if you haven't read the comics yet, or if you want to revisit them with us, get ready for that. Yes, yes, absolutely. I can't wait to see what happens to Team Avatar. I can't wait to like jump into Korra and be able to actually finish it. Because Mm -hmm. while I remember there being some less than stellar parts, and again, I haven't watched this in quite some time. I do remember the voice acting was incredible. I did hear that it gets so much better later on. I'm just so excited to experience this with everyone. So, yeah. I am too. It's like, it's one of those things where I want to speed through to be able to get to it and enjoy it. But then at the same time, I don't want to go too fast because it's going to be over. I know. Oh, man. And then the Netflix Avatar is going to hit at some point. Fingers crossed, everyone. We'll see. And then Avatar Studios. Avatar Studios, I'm looking forward to more for obvious reasons. (laughs) Yes. I think everyone is. (laughs) Yep. All right. Well, that is it for today. Greg, where can everyone find you? Everyone knows if you are looking for a place to hang, that's what kids say now, right? Looking for a place to hang, right? Yeah. Okay. That's what I thought. (laughs) Hello, fellow kids. Hello, fellow youths. It's (laughs) me. Me, Greg, also a youth. Uh, You can join me on Monday and Friday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time over on Twitch, twitch.tv slash BoosterGreg. Also on Twitter, or a couple people have actually been tweeting out to me lately, which is really good to see. We've gotten some new people who listen to the podcast that have been hanging out on Twitch. So if you want to talk about the series a little bit, you had some thoughts and stuff, come on over, hang out. It'll be a good time. Awesome. And you can find me online if you search for Acorn Bandit. I am Acorn Bandit on Twitter, but Joyson Studio on Instagram and elsewhere. The easy thing you can do is go to joysons.com slash pages slash acorn to see a list of all of my links. And that is J-O-I-S-A-N-S dot com slash pages slash acorn. I will say that I have been on a life-caused hiatus from my other big project, which is Final Fantasy X, the novel. I am going to be picking that up soon. I will be participating in NaNoWriMo this year, and that will be my project. So if you want to follow along, if you're a fan of Final Fantasy, if you're new to Final Fantasy and you want to see my writing journey, you can check it out over on uh, ffxthenovel.com. But you can also find the link on my website. Coming up next time. I don't need to tell you. Everyone already knows it's the book three discussion episode. This is not (laughs) news. We do this after every book. Yep. Book three recap. Yes. All this and more next time on Avatar Avatar, the the podcast. podcast. Avatar, the podcast, is a proud part of the Geek Generation Network. Remember to check out all of our other podcasts at thegeekgeneration.com.